What'd you have for uh, dinner tonight? What did I have for dinner today? Came home a little bit late. Um, oh, I had uh, made myself a burrito with uh, the last of the leftover burrito stuff. Oh, that sounds good. Now, did, did your family have a burrito? Uh, my family had already eaten by the time I got home. Because you were late. Yes, I was. Hmm. We copped out and went to the sandwich place. I had a Cobb salad. The Cobb is a strong salad. Is it? I'm not sure it is. I <laughs> really? I think it is one of the weaker salads. Oh, really? Yes. I think... See, I don't... I don't. I like a lot of... Uh, unlike mini carnivores, I'm not against salads. I like a salad. I don't like making a salad. If somebody makes me a salad, as with sliced fruit, I will totally eat it. What's the, what's the top of the salad heap? Uh, of, of the... In the great hierarchy of salads? Mm-hmm. A... A table made, table side waiter made Caesar salad in the old style, uh, like with all the deadly stuff in it, can be really, really good. Yep, you got it. Just making sure we were all in agreement here. The the apex salad predator, the Caesar. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. And it's it's you know it's kind of a shame, I guess, that you know uh, again now what people think of as a Caesar salad is something you get at McDonald's with shredded cheese and you put a thing of dressing on top Caesar dressing but that's nothing there's no anchovies in there probably you don't have the raw eggs I feel like uh, Caesar is kind of like pizza and that even the very worst Caesar salad is still has a certain appeal to like you know kids and people who don't know what a real pizza tastes like you know what I mean like mm-hmm. even just the very worst frozen pizza yes it's pretty vile it's disgusting but you can get a little kid to eat it not that I'm saying little kids like Caesar salad, but even the very worst Caesar salad, it's such a strong recipe that even if you screw up every possible ingredient, you're still like, you know what? It's better than eating lettuce by itself. It's, it's, got, like a, it's got like a high floor. Like, yeah, it's hard yeah. to screw up. Yeah, because, yeah, I mean, we all had a bad Caesar. You know, it's just like with these little plastic white strings of you're not sure what kind of cheese they, they're saying it's supposed to be, and you got a, a random crouton and something wet, and it's still kind of like, all right, I see what you were going for there. Yeah, something I've arrived at, I, I get the feeling you're not a giant fan of traveling. Um, is that true? What, what gives you that idea? <laughs> the fact that sometimes even when people are willing to pay for it, you still don't want to travel places. It's disruptive. It's very disruptive. Do not like to travel. Yeah. Hmm. You know what? Put it on the list. The thing I, I something I struggle with a lot is, you know, you know me and the food and the energy levels and stuff. And I don't like buying eight dollars worth of whatever at an airport. It it, it just it, it bugs me. I, I don't like doing it. What I've discovered that is kind of a strange and funny thing is that in some ways whether you get it at a Walgreens or whether you get it at an airport, a salad can be your best bet. And I'll tell you why. Because you can look at it and you can uh, you can see what it looks like. And you can see like whether it'll be mostly okay. And when you eat it, you don't feel like you want to die. It's easy to walk into a McDonald's and get a quarter pounder with cheese because you're going, oh, I'm so hungry. But like that is such a terrible thing to eat when you're on the road. Expensive salads make you gassy. Mmm. How do we get into this? We start. It's because you started this. You started by asking what you I have for talk. dinner. You never talk. You, you, you just sit this. there. You never talk. It's always on me. It's your show, <laughs> yeah, but I'm the one who has to do all the work. You're right. I never talk. Let's go. Why don't you go look at the waveforms? See, see oh, whose little track in the thing is filled with squiggly lines. I never talk. Right. That's me. God, it's heartbreaking. We only have so many of these left, and you're making it weird. Now, uh, what are we on? What number is this? I think this might be nine. Sure. Got yeah. One more. The penultimate episode. 
Yeah, I see something skipping a little bit ahead in your follow-up section here, thinking of taking questions for 10, but you're right. How would that even work? Because I haven't done the math. I don't think it would work. No, by the time people hear this episode, 10 will have already long since been recorded. And I'm not sure why there's, there's such a lag. Like, why is it not that we... We're on like a regular schedule at this point, right? Why why are we not recording this and then releasing it, uh, you know, a couple days later? You're you're because you're you're a prickly mess and and won't conform to the way everybody else does podcasts. Well, I'm just I'm just doing it every other week instead of every week, but it still should it should seem like fine. We do it every other week, but the week we release, we should record a couple days pass for editing and so on and so forth, and then we release. Why? How did we somehow get behind or ahead or whatever? Well, I think we're ahead technically. Um, I don't know. I'm. <laughs> I'm having trouble keeping it straight in my mind. I cannot talk about, this is something my wife and I uh, go at each other a little bit about, is I, I don't want to talk about time unless I have a calendar in front of me. It's, it, it's, part of it is just the way my brain works, you know, in that it doesn't work. But part of it is also, like, I have just learned that, like, don't even, I can't, I can't tell you anything about time unless I look at a calendar. I, it is one of the few things in all of my productivity BS where I do practice what I preach and more. I am so weird about the calendar because I really do like stuff I talk about I'm back to work. Like I don't schedule anything without looking at what I'm doing that day, what I'm doing the day before, what I'm doing after. Make sure you scan for the banner at the top because you forgot you're actually at a conference that week or whatever. I can't do it. And so like, I just feel like I just shut down if I have to talk about time. Well, anyway, I, I just bring that up because you were trying to blame me, but I feel like in every other week's always, schedule, it's, po- it's possible to have an every other week recording schedule and not have, not be like three episodes ahead like we are. So I don't know how that happened, but... We'll fix that. I, and we'll fix that in season two. Sure. Exactly. Um. So yeah, that was one... So we probably can't do that, huh? Can't do what? We can't, we can't really oh, take, take suggestions. Taking the questions? It's not going to work. I don't know. Because this will come uh, out, this will come out in, uh, in a month. By <laughs> mentioning this, it's very possible that people will start sending us questions anyway, and we will get to read them, uh, knowing full well that we had already recorded episode 10. That's brutal. I know. I think that's part of the experience for us. Mm. It's just part of part of the game. Yeah. I saw the first half of that. Wait, you still, you still, you don't even want to know how it ends. I, sh- I sure do, I, I, but I got my homework. One of, one, of the, one of my favorite scenes in all of cinema is towards the end of that movie. All right, all right, all right. Um, we have some, well, we have, uh, there was one piece of illegitimate follow-up. I have a piece of illegitimate follow-up and I think you have kind of two pieces of somewhat legitimate follow-up. Last week we talked a lot about destiny and I realized after, do you hear this dog in the background? I hear, I hear a little dog. Yes. There is a little dog outside my, this is my version of your train. I feel like I'm just gonna wait for it. Like I don't have a little dog. I think it's near sweet. Me. I think that's a. Do, do you? I, I know you have an ex dog. Do you have a current dog? Do not. But uh, I, I want to know what little dog this. I, there's a bunch of little dogs in the neighborhood here. Why is this dog in front of my house at nine thirty nine? Barking while I'm trying to podcast. It's got camp tomorrow. It should be in bed. Seriously. All right. It's faded, fading into the distance. Last episode. Two. Two. <laughs> two weeks ago. <laughs> Two weeks ago, standard human time, we talked about Destiny, and you schooled me on this game that's way more than a first-person shooter. It's a, this immersive environment. You talked about uh, your big battle with Skolas, and it was it was uh, super interesting. But you left something out. Uh, not just something like I like I said. I feel like I didn't even scratch the surface. I was trying to give you an idea of the scope of the game, why people are playing it, what it is they're doing while they're playing it, why we keep coming back to it. 
Uh, and I didn't even mention like staples, major pillars of the the experience. Uh, one of the ones that I kicked myself into mentioning was Zur. Oh, and this is where you get the good stuff. Well, it's just one of the many places you get the good stuff. But the reason it, it comes up is it's a good example of having something that's a little bit fun and that is sort of periodic. Uh, so Zur is a vendor. There are a bunch of vendors in the game that sell you things. Zur is a vendor that shows up once a week. He comes on a certain day and he leaves a couple days later. It's a regular schedule. He shows up in a different spot every time, which, again, in the age of the internet sounds stupid because, you know, where there's a site called whereiszur.com, which, by the way, I've tweeted and discussed this before. Whereiszur.com, when you go to the site, the very first thing at the very top of the site, sort of above the fold in the, the old parlance, mm-hmm. is a video showing you someone running to where Zur is. Not a map, not a sentence, a video. This is so emblematic of the age that we live in that that is the primary means through which they think they can communicate where something is. I want to see a map, maybe because I'm an old man. Who wants to sit there and watch a video, have a little intro thing, have a little music, have a little guy narrating maybe, showing someone running in the game, you know, run, 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 take a right turn, run, 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 take a left turn, run. I mean, I guess if you don't know where it is in the map, you want it, but the, the primary thing, seriously, should be, a, anyway, uh-huh. um, tells you where Zer is. And so it's not as if, like, why, why does he show up in a different place? He's in one of like seven or eight or nine or 10 different places. Like he moves around. Sometimes he goes to a new place or whatever. You have to run over to him to you know, communicate with the merchant and see what kind of things he has. But in the age of the internet, do we really care? Like, isn't it just a hassle to have Zer show up in a different place? Why doesn't he just show up in the same place every time? If this was a pre-internet age, and every week when Zer arrived, you had the excitement of looking around to find where Zer was, uh, maybe that would work. But in this day and age, people just go and look up and then they go where the place is. Not only that, but Bungie sells an iOS application that if you launch it, when Zer is around, it brings up a little uh, alert or a sheet that comes up and says, oh, here, Zer is in town. Uh, this is what he's selling this week, and here's where he is. Um, I don't remember if it shows you the map or not, but it certainly tells you what he's selling. So it ruins that surprise, too. And yet, I will say that despite all these things, despite the fact that it is entirely possible to know everything about Zer and, and, and look this up before you go into the game, and it's kind of a hassle to find where he is, there still, I think, is a little bit of value. First of all, for the people who wait around when the time comes, when he arrives, like for a certain time, he's not there, and then he arrives. As soon as he arrives, someone's going to be the first one to find him. If no one has found him and the site isn't updated yet because it's like one second after midnight or whenever he appears, you can run around and find Zer, and that's kind of fun. And the second thing is, even just having to go to the site and wondering where he is and wondering what he's selling. Even if you wonder what he's selling and then you launch the iOS app and find out, it's kind of like Christmas morning to find out, what is he selling this week? Where is he this week? Ooh, he's in the reef. He wasn't in the reef before, you know? Uh, It's not a big deal, but it's a tiny little thing, and it happens every week. Um, This type of sort of periodic structured event, it's kind of like, it's not like an advent calendar, but it's just, you just get into these patterns and traditions of knowing that every week there's going to be something a little bit interesting and fun and you know even many many weeks in i find myself wondering what will he be selling this week will he be selling something that i want do i have enough strange coins to buy whatever it is he's selling why does he sell certain things is it really random do people manually put it there there's a lot of mystery who is there where does he come from there's a lot of things we don't know about him um so i was surprised i didn't mention that because it's such a great example of a seemingly stupid thing 
that nevertheless fills a sort of like a, an important mechanical role. And there are many things in Destiny and, and all MMOs that have this periodic nature that get people coming back because it feels like a routine. It feels like, I don't know, the, the safety of tradition or whatever, and a little bit of excitement into your week. Well, yeah, I mean, in, in, in the real world, we, we know to a fair certainty that in the summertime in a certain neighborhood, you're likely to see the ice cream man. And even though you know the ice cream man is coming, it's still pretty exciting when you hear him coming towards your house. That, you know, that's just, that's just like you say, it's tradition. But my, my question is, and so I, I don't know this game at all, but so when you, if you find Zur, is there like a line? I mean, do, uh, are you well, so, is everybody experiencing Zur in the same place at the same time with the same people? So this is another example, I think, of when people say that uh, technology can't make games better anymore. Uh, it totally can. And one instance uh, example of it is that MMOs uh, have huge numbers of subscribers, millions of people, right? But you can't have millions of people playing in, in a game at the same time at this point, technologically speaking. So when you go down to a location, if Zur is in the tower, right? The tower is a place where you can go. It's on Earth. It's a big building with a bunch of different rooms and wings and stairs and so on and so forth, and an outdoor and indoor portion, and Zur is very often somewhere in there. When you go to the tower, you do not arrive in the tower with the millions of other people, or thousands at the very least, who are playing Destiny at that moment in time. You arrive at the tower, you, you engage in a matchmaking process, and the server puts you in the tower with like eight or six other people. I forget how many it is. And those are the only people in your version of the tower. So you can see other people there, uh, and there are other people doing their thing, but there's not a million of them. And and you get access to the same stuff that week as people everywhere else? Yes. And he has basically mm -hmm. an unlimited supply. He doesn't go out of inventory. There's a lot of things they do in MMOs that have been uh, done this way to avoid sort of the worst of human nature. So, for instance, when you kill somebody in the game, very often they will drop some ammunition. Uh, to keep it from, to you know, and different kind of ammunition is better than others. Like the heavy weapon ammunition is rare. You want that one. Uh because you don't get a lot of it when a heavy ammo drops and you see it you don't have to worry about running over to grab the heavy ammo before everyone else on your team or everyone else on an opposing team or something um well that's not entirely true in, in the crucible but anyway and when you're playing against the enemy players uh the you know the computer control players when you see ammo drop only you see that ammo drop another player can run right over it a they don't even see it and b they can't pick it up so it's just for you. So you don't have this thing of like where something good drops and everybody runs at it and someone steals it and they stole your ammo or whatever. Everyone gets their own view of what has dropped. Same thing with all the other goodies. So you don't have to worry about someone else stealing the stuff. Same thing with the vendors. You don't have to worry that, oh, I got to run to the vendor because if some other guy gets there first, he'll deplete the inventory. That's a mechanic they could put in the game, but they don't because they know it sort of fosters bad feelings. There's They don't create an artificial scarcity where none need exist for, for the purposes of competing with other players. So... So no, when I when I go down to the tower, there's a bunch of other people there. I walk up to Zer. There could be two or three other people conversing with Zer at the same time. They don't interfere with me. I don't interfere with them. I don't have to worry that they're going to buy the thing I want to get. Um, the technical limitation I was talking about is they can really only have a small number of people interacting at once because the servers can't handle. We just don't have the technology for that. If we did have the technology for all of the millions of Destiny players to be playing in the same place at the same time, I think you can make a very interesting and very different kind of game based on that. It'd be a totally different game. Yeah, we're not we're not up to that point yet. They they keep increasing the number of players playing at once, and it really changes how you have to design the game. But Destiny is much like the other MMOs, where it's only like three or six or twelve people playing at the same time, plus uh, many many more uh, computer controlled enemies. Do you? Um, 
this is quick, but do you, so when you go there, do you interact with other players and do you interact with Zer? I mean, do you like talk to him or you just, uh, you just pick stuff you off a, a table? The way Destiny did it is when you, you walk up to Zer, you press a key and then you enter a screen that shows Zer sort of off to the side and he has a bunch of canned messages and animations that he goes through and basically you're just looking at a big grid of icons. If you remember the old sort of uh, role-playing games where you go into a vendor or a store and it goes into a different interface where you see all the stuff that you can buy. A little like Mine- Minecraft and, though, it's just you see a bunch, a bunch of stuff. Yeah, it's similar to that. It's it's a different screen. It's not like mm-hmm. you're interacting with it. You you go out of the place where you see your character. Uh, it's kind of weird that because when you're in the tower, you see your character from a third person perspective. You're not looking through your character's eyeballs anymore, uh, which is a place where you can see your stuff and see other people's stuff. And you walk up to Zer and hit the button, and then you, the entire screen is taken over by a thing that shows a close up of Zer, some words, and a big grid of icons that you can sort of mouse over and and uh, select the ones that you want. Do you have? Um... I mean, it sounds like I noticed there's a lot of rules about, like, it sounds like you can only own one piece of certain pieces of armor and stuff. Like, you can only get one, right? So You can only equip one exotic weapon and one piece of exotic armor at a time. So there's a form of encumbrance? It's not encumbrance. I think it's a game balancing. I mean, there's no bag of holding BS going on. There is, kind of. But, I mean, so here's the thing. Since Destiny is based on collecting stuff, it would be nice if you could collect an unlimited amount of things. Like, how many guns can one person own? Uh, there's no technical limit in the game. They show you, you can only be holding uh, one of each kind of weapon. So you rotate through a primary weapon, a special weapon, and a heavy weapon. And changing which primary, which heavy, which special is equipped is kind of annoying because you got to go into a menu screen that, that covers your entire screen. And during that time, the game is not paused because you can't pause because there's other people playing. It's not as if you can pause the world, right? So it's an MMO. There is no actual pause. So during gameplay, you aren't going to uh, change weapons a lot. So you kind of have to pick your three weapons you're going to be using. But beyond those three weapons, there's the question of, all right, how many other weapons do I have to choose from? And how many things can I have total? Uh, how many weapons do I have to choose from is based, seems almost, almost based on aesthetics. You can have nine of each. So it's a three by three square. One of, You have nine primary weapons, nine special weapons, and nine heavy weapons. Of course, you usually leave one slot open in case you pick up a weapon, if, in case a, something drops and you want to pick up a weapon or an engram that uh, resolves to a weapon. So I usually go with 888 eight, eight, with at least one slot open in each thing. And then the other question is, all right, if I want to have more than nine of each, can I store stuff elsewhere? And they have a, a thing called the vault where you can store other stuff. But the vault is not unlimited. The vault has a grid of icons that you can store. And when your vault is full, you can't pick up any more stuff. And that's actually been a problem. A lot of players who've been playing a long time have a lot of stuff and they don't want to get rid of any of their stuff. And so they expanded the vault space a little bit and then they've said there's some technical limitation preventing them from expanding the vault space further. I, I don't understand what the technical limitation could be. Just, you know, make multiple screens. But doesn't in the that vault. keep the game interesting and fair? I mean, if you could if you could hoard all the stuff, then doesn't that isn't that a disincentive for new people to come in? Uh I they have other ways of doing that because they every expansion uh increases the level the things can go up to so if you want to keep all your equipment you'd have to keep leveling it and some in the the year two expansion they're going to leave behind some of the old weapons you won't be able to continue leveling them so that you're going to eventually get rid of them because they won't be useful in the game anymore like they have a way to rotate that stuff but um but yeah like there is that's a little bit of artificial scarcity coming into the game preventing you from equipping more than one exotic is making you make hard choices about what you really care about. If they let you put exotics in everything, you'd have exotics in every slot and you wouldn't use anything in the game except for exotics. Artificial scarcity, it seems to me, is like what a video game is. 
Right, but like there's there's good and bad. The 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 other artificial scarcity would be like, what if only one heavy ammo dropped and, and it was really only one? And if someone else on your team picked it up, you couldn't have it. It would make you resent people on your team. That's bad artificial scarcity. It's that's mm-hmm. it's fostering bad feelings between people who are supposed to be cooperating towards a common goal. Good artificial artificial scarcity is only allowing you to equip one exotic weapon because then you have to pick. All right, well, what's more important to me? My primary my special, my heavy, which exotic do I have that is good for this mission? And once you equip that one, you're like, okay, well, now I can't have an exotic in the other two slots, so I have to to sort of have a collection of non-exotic weapons that are still good for my purposes. You sort of have to choose your loadout. They're trying to make it, you know, so it's more difficult for you to do. They don't want you to just say, I'm always going to have the very best primary weapon, the very best secondary, because if you play a long time, you could end up having all weapons. This makes it so that even if you have every single weapon in the game fully leveled, which some people do, uh, every single exotic weapon fully leveled, that still doesn't matter. You still have to make hard choices. You can't just put all your favorites in all the slots. You have to decide what you're going to do. Mm. You uh, are you are definitely right to say that this is not the game to start me on. No, no, it's not. It's far like just mechanically. First I mean, how did you? How long? How did, uh, just quickly, out of curiosity, like how long did it take you to grok even like the kinds of stuff you needed to learn for this? Was it was I'm, it pretty? It was pretty because of your background. It was pretty doable. Yeah, I like because I've been reading about it. I haven't played MMOs before this, but I've been reading about them since they existed. So I was pretty much completely familiar with all the different mechanics and things and could kind of see, you know, I, I had a vocabulary. I had to think something to compare this to whereas the games that I didn't play but had read about for years uh, that I understood. And then the first person mechanics I totally understood as well. And this it's is, this to, is made to, by the same people who did the game with Master Chef, right? Yes. Okay. And, and Marathon mm-hmm. and Pathways into Darkness and Oni and Myth. You remember those games. Myth? Sure. Is that the one with the island? And that's Myst. Oh. Sorry. Common mistake, yes. Different game. <laughs> I'm so yeah. bad at this. And the, the only other item I had from Destiny was guns as characters. Um, I'm like I'm like I'm like that uncle where like the kid asks for G.I. Joe and you yeah, give him one of Big Jim's sidekicks. Yeah. GoBots Transformers. Right, yeah, exactly. Thing, right? Well, Myth and Myst sound similar. Uh but, I had the, I yeah. had the one with the island, you know. Yeah. That was a good one. And uh, then speaking of speaking of guns. Yes, guns as characters. Uh, One of the things they do in the game is they give every gun a name and a little slogan and a little backstory. And they try to give them interesting characteristics. They look different. They have different different behaviors, different perks. And they take on sort of personalities. And so the guns and the armor pieces and other things in the game are kind of characters. Discussions among Destiny people include lots of shorthand references to guns that we seem like i think a lot of us are sort of burning into our brains things that we'll remember years from now the names of guns and especially as they leave behind some gums but like three years from now people are going to be like remember Fatebringer? remember black hammer those were the days right those will be discussions people senior citizens have uh 20 or 30 years from now regarding this game and i think it's a clever thing to do a lot of games have done this before to give items in the game names instead of just like you have to you have to give them something but instead of just giving them numbers or whatever they all have they have fanciful names um and personalities uh, of, of how they sound how they look how they feel to use and what their abilities are and that is a very clever thing to do and that sort of ties the community together in a way that they can discuss uh you know discussing guns as if they are characters in the game not just things to acquire uh I guess they're kind of like objects of, of desire and lust, but also, uh, you know, they, they become your, your, uh, it, it's like people who name their guitars, right? 
Same, I think it's a similar type of thing. It's sure. an instrument that you use to do something that you enjoy, and you become fond of a particular instrument that feels good or looks good or has been with you uh, during a particular important time in your music playing life. And and so when you see, you talked a little bit about how you can do things that are, to use that word, I I like how you use the word fashion. There are things you can do to the way that you look and things like that. But when you see somebody with a certain kind of gun, is that meaningful? Like, is, it, is there a signification? Yeah, yeah. like, like you, graphics are good enough, first of all, that you can identify from a reasonable distance what gun people are using, uh, which is important for like, wow, that guy has a whatever and I really wish I had one of those or... Uh, you know, w- when you get killed in player versus player, it tells you what gun you were killed with. If you find that you're huh. getting killed a lot by Thorn, you may think, hmm, there may be something to this Thorn thing. I should look into that. But I keep getting killed by a gun and it always says Thorn at the end of it. Do only the good players use Thorn? Why do they use it? Why am I getting killed by it a lot? Um, and if you see someone running towards you in player versus player, you can uh, do they have their rocket launcher out? What gun are they using? Are If they are holding a shotgun, they're probably not dangerous to me from this distance. But maybe I should look out if they're going to blink towards me and, and shotgun me in the top of the head. Like, you want to look at what gun they're using. And in the tower, you, you're, I forget what it is. It's like there's one gun that you're like, it shows a gun on your back. Um, and I think it also shows a gun in your hand. I forget. But anyway, you can see which gun people have strapped to their back. And actually, the new expansion, they're going to let you change which gun is visible back there. And you can use it as a status symbol. Oh, he has that gun that was very difficult to acquire. Or he's lucky that he got this gun that's very, very rare. Um, yeah, it's it's like a status symbol. It's like having the members-only jacket or whatever. Hmm. Hmm. i got a lot to learn. It's You know, I have to tell you, the um, the the more D&D part of it is is really appealing to me. What's what's a now what's in uh, we can't talk about this all night but what's the um what are games like hmm, what what are games like this that are more heavy on the role playing part I mean that's like a whole that's like a whole genre right yeah I don't I don't play those kind of games a lot so I can't I don't really know what they're like that's a, a genre that I have mostly just read about things like Dragon Age and Inquisition and Skyrim and uh, games where you sort of well they're more story focused these days but I don't know I I don't know what your frame of reference is did you ever play like the SSI games. Do you know what those are? I don't think so. No. Uh, what RPGs have you played? Well, I played Advanced D&D. I think I played a little bit of Traveler. Thieves Guild, I think it was called. But, that, but that's like pen and paper you're talking about, right? Yeah, yeah, right. That That's more, uh, you know, you have much more freedom in that because there's no, like, you're not working your way through a story or if you are, it's led by a DM, like an actual human and not, even if they're going off a module, it's not quite the same thing as a computer game. But the computer games are sort of like, the computer is the DM, uh, there is a module you're going through. There's a story behind it. Uh, and you have a set of quests and a set of characters and you build a party and you bring them through. Like there are games like that, but they're more, these days they're more individually focused and they're much more linear than they were in in the old days. Um, it's more like playing through a movie, like more like The Last of Us actually, but with role-playing and leveling okay. and stats and specialization and maybe some party building or whatever. But even though it's like, they're very complicated. Um, I mean, like gameplay wise, like mechanically, like The Last of Us is, is seemingly straightforward, very linear. You have a series of missions. There's really just one thing you can do all the time. There's not even that many puzzles or anything. Uh, but to play through the game successfully requires a significant amount of skill. How, so, does, that, how does that end up not feeling like Dragon's Lair? Uh, it was, but it's not because, because Dragon's Lair is just, you know, Dragon's Lair, you could program a robot to, to play through. To program a robot to play through The Last of Us, it would be much more difficult because you have enemies with AI. You have a sort of an open world where you can travel anywhere and do oh, okay. various... Like, it's not... 
you know, you're, it's it's in a 3D world. You can run anywhere you want. Like it's a, everything it, I've seen it, of Last of Us makes me think it's a cross between like The Road and like a young adult novel. Like it, it seems like it's very story heavy. Maybe that's not, just the ones I've seen. Not very YA, but it is a lot like The Road. It's a heavy inspiration. It's any sort of post-apocalyptic type of thing. But it's a it's a third person action game <laughs> an engine that people are familiar with. You see your person from head to toe as they run around. You're kind of looking over their shoulder. The main mechanic is raising a gun and shooting something or picking up like a bat or a stick and hitting something. But don't you also have to like explore the house and figure out what happened? Is that, is that uh, Last of Us? That's uh, Gone Home. Oh, sorry. You're, you're exploring and looking for or items to, they have a crafting system where you can build things out of items you find. Those are, those are more kind of the gamey type uh, parts of the game. But, but it's not like Dragon Slayer at all where you're just watching a video and at a certain point in the video you now must make a move. Yeah, I remember when I first heard about that because Dragon's Lair... I think it came out around my last year of high school. I want to say 84, 85, maybe earlier. But, you know, it was it was one of the first video games where we found ourselves our, ourselves pumping 50 cents in instead of a quarter. It cost more. And but the, I mean it was incredible. I mean the graphics were amazing compared to anything we'd seen because well, we there were there weren't graphics. Well, it was that's just what a I was, series of movies. Yeah, that's what I'm about to say. Certain... I think it was a laser disc is what yep. it was. Yep. And you either it was like to use uh maybe to misuse your terminology, it's a zero or a one. Like if you hit the light thing in exactly this point, you get to move on. If you don't, the game's over. <laughs> Yeah, that it was, was an early version of what we call quick time events or uh, less affectionately known as press X not to die, where <laughs> they'll, they'll be showing a movie and at a certain point in the movie, you'll be prompted or not uh, to press a particular key or press in a, push in a particular direction on the joystick. And if you don't do that at that time, you, you will die and they will show the movie of you dying. Dragon's Lair will show a movie and at this point in the movie, you can push the stick up, down, left or right. And if you pick the wrong direction, they show a death animation showing your attempt to do, you know, or whatever. Right. If you push to the right direction, it will show you the next series of movies. And so it was just simply a matter of memorizing the points in which you're expected to press an input. And there are pretty big windows when you're expected to put the input. Like, it wasn't like a millisecond precision. It was just like, now choose what you're going to do. I'm going to go up. I'm going to go forward. I'm going to, I don't forget if there was an attack button or whatever. Um, and quick time events they often have because you'll be playing the game like a modern game where you get to control where you where you can where you walk and what you do or whatever and at a certain point the camera angle will change and you realize you're in the midst of a cinematic and your choices are now constrained much more narrowly you can't pull back on the stick and just run away you're in the middle of a quick time event so you have no control over your player until they prompt you to do something and there's usually only one or two things you can do depending on how they prompt you and you have to do them when they tell you to do them in the way they tell you or you will die, and uh, they have a bad reputation for a reason because it, it takes away your freedom. Like cutscenes are different. Cutscenes yeah. also have a bad reputation, but at least those, it's clear they're not interactive. It's like yeah, now we're trying going to fool to you into you. thinking you're actually playing, yeah. and you know, it's like you're talking to the movie. But you know, the thing about when I learned about Dragon's Lair, and I feel like there were other games after that, but you know, it coming in the context of um, other arcade games of the time, um, it it it's one of those things that I feel like it's almost like a mechanical Turk, where you watch the the effect, as they would say in Magic, right? You watch you watch the illusion or whatever, and you go, I can't believe this. They just made a video game that looks like a movie. That's so incredible. But like, even when you find out what the trick of the Mechanical Turk is, you're still kind of amazed that they could pull off the trick. I mean, I know it's lame as a video game, but as a hack, it's kind of amazing for the time. Well, they have actual games that look like movies now. If it go Google for, what is it called, Cuphead? Okay. Cuphead game. I guess I visited here before. Oh, look at that. Huh. All right. So if you watch this little trailer, it should, you'll understand, you know, 
what what uh, movie genre this thing is going for. But that is a fully controllable. It looks like a Disney kind right. of thing. That is a fully controllable game, just like Mario or any. Oh, type you're of- kidding! Wow, that's so cool. It looks like a '30s cartoon. <gasps> this is so cool. It looks like one of those wacky uh, cartoons where the flowers dance. Right, and so, but that is not a cutscene. Like that's that's them playing that's the, the game. game right there. It's I mean it's a it's a two D side scrolling game, so it's not a completely open three D world. But that's you know, and you're like that must it's like Dragon's Lair, but you're actually imagine they could make a game like Dragon's Lair that was completely fully controllable at this point. Jesus. Okay, that's how, we should how probably we should probably keep moving. Uh, I'm gonna table mine, but I will I will uh, just put this as a stake in the ground. Do you have a Wii U? I do. Um. I would like for a future show, I'll just leave you to think about this. Right now, we've got a Wii U. Somebody was kind enough to give us for Christmas. And basically, we play Mario Kart, and we flip over into that inscrutable mode where you go and treat it like a regular Wii, and we play, you know, tennis. But, like, I would like suggestions from you about Wii U games. Not today. We don't have time, probably. But All right. Because, uh, is there one that's like Nintendo Land or something like that? Is the, yep, I, I already suggested that to you in the past. Yes, you did. Okay. I think we got through our follow-up. Sure. And now a word from our sponsor. This episode of Reconcilable Differences is brought to you in part by Casper. You can learn more about Casper's wonderful mattresses right now by visiting caspersleep.com slash diffs, that's D-I-F-F-S. This is super easy to understand. Casper offers an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. Casper's mattresses are one of a kind. It's a new kind of hybrid mattress that combines premium latex foam with memory foam. It's got just the right sink and just the right bounce. The best of two technologies come together for better nights and brighter days. I have been sleeping personally with my actual back on a Casper mattress for months. And I love this thing. I love it so much. I love the quality of the product and of the sleep that I get. But you know what? Even these many, many months later, I am just stunned at how easy this company is to deal with, just how painless they have made the entire process. God help you if you have ever tried to navigate the toxic hell stew that is shopping for costly mattresses in a retail store. It is a bewildering and very depressing process. Mm -mm, Not with Casper. With Casper, a surprisingly small box magically appears at your door. You carry it up to your room, yes, by yourself. You can carry a mattress by yourself. And you use this uh, high-tech little dingus to gently swipe open a bag full of awesome mattress. The mattress gently inhales. And within minutes, you have everything you need for a good night's sleep. It's actually that easy. It is actually that simple. And here is the crazy part. Casper also offers an equally simple risk-free trial and return policy. Try sleeping on your Casper mattress for 100 nights. And if improbably it's not to your liking, you can actually send it back. Free delivery, painless returns, and sleep. Glorious sleep. As I mentioned, the prices for these mattresses is just out of control. $500 for a twin-size mattress. And only $950 for a king-size mattress. Try comparing that to your local retailer. Your eyes will boggle. On top of it all, Casper has a special offer to listeners of reconcilable differences. You can get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting caspersleep.com diffs and using that offer code diffs, D-I-F-F-S, when you check out. Terms and conditions apply. I would like to personally thank Casper for so many nights of wonderful sleep and for supporting reconcilable differences. Okay, we're back. Um... Should we go to our topic? I think we should. It's all green. I don't know who put I, these I, I ate the booger. I guess I uh, I had to go to the rolled back version. I don't understand computers. 
It's green. It's green because that's, that's from the, uh, the rollback version. How do we start talking about this? In our early discussions, this was one of, I think this was one of the first things we talked about. And I feel like I don't know exactly what this means. And yet I kind of really get exactly what this means. We talked about what it means to be a late bloomer. What did we cover? Well, well, I feel like I feel like you might have you might you were the one who I think named the topic and and brought it up, and it, it felt like you were talking. It's it, I think it might have even started in the context of like where we eventually someday we'll have these spinoff discussions about drugs and music. But it was sort of like one of the early things where we realized what we wanted the show to be about was where it's like one of us has been deeply interested in certain topics for a pretty long time, mostly without flagging, where the other one if they're interested in it at all, feels kind of like adrift or not interested. Like, I am lost on video games. You don't care about most comics. Like, but there's certain kinds of things where, you know, what, you know, what does it mean when you wake up and realize that you, you might be into this thing, but like you, or as I suggested here, like what happens if you missed your window for like the time when it was coolest or most interesting to be into that thing? What was your take on it? Uh, that I think we've definitely delved into that, and that is a, a topic we can come back to with uh, respect to a lot of these things here. When I hear late bloomer, though, what I'm thinking of mostly is like childhood development. Like that's the, the traditional sense of at a certain point in your in your development from a baby to an adult or whatever, or even just through adulthood, you're expected to hit certain milestones. You walk yeah, by yeah. this age. You are potty trained by this age. You, you know, can can uh, talk by this age, read and write by this age. All all these different things, right? Um, and those are the easy milestones. And then eventually it gets more complicated, like uh, you know, social things, knowing how to interact with other people, uh, and uh, being you know, ha- comfort in real world scenarios, being able to uh, be self sufficient, to be able to stay home by yourself and mm-hmm. do all the right things that you're supposed to do, being able to go to a store and pay for something, come back, knowing how to talk on the telephone, uh, knowing how to uh, interact with uh, members of the opposite sex or the same sex or whoever it is that you're interested in, knowing how to have and keep friends, knowing how to be at a party. Like these right, are all right, right. sort of the milestones going up and eventually into adulthood, knowing how to knowing how to get and hold a job, uh, knowing how to uh, be a husband, to be a homeowner, to be a member of a, you know, a, a community or like, those are all the milestones to talk about. And when you say late bloomer, it's like, well, mm-hmm. Timmy didn't learn to talk until he was, you know, four years old. Uh, or uh, little Sue wasn't potty trained until she was five. Right. And those, then it's like, it's always framed as like, but they turned out to be just fine. Or Einstein didn't right. talk until he was six years old or whatever. Um, and for the social parts, it's like, well, you know, uh, your, your son or daughter didn't really know how to make friends until later in life but by the time they were a teenager it was like a social butterfly or whatever so it's usually you hear about late bloomers because as like a positive spin as in they missed a milestone that sort of like the average window of like when everyone else is doing this thing but when they finally did it they bloomed like a flower and like they were late but it was okay because when they right like well like a, a family member um with well a family member with pretty definitely asperger's and um probably uh, some slight autism. Um, he he he's one of those kids though, where he did not speak a word until he was about four. But then when he did, he was speaking in paragraphs, and now he makes submarines in Groton. 
So, you know what I mean? <laughs> but where, where, or, but, you know, when we talk about late bloomer, though, I think the, the critical distinction in some ways is, I mean, when I think of late bloomer, I, I, you, I go straight to the physical characteristics of, you say, like, there's a like, this kid was real, like, in, in our parlance, this kid was real shrimpy. And then suddenly in ninth grade, he grew, you know, so many inches in this one summer or something like that. But to me, the, like, the, when we talk about being a late bloomer, there's this really, the, the, the distinction from my point of view that makes late blooming interesting and difficult is, hmm, who said this? Was this you? It might have been Matt Howie. I think it was Matt Howie. He was telling me that, like, you realize it's really weird on the day you realize your child has become a kid. And, like, it sounds like a distinction without a difference, but there kind of is. Like, oh, this isn't really a child anymore. This is a kid. And I think one of the things that makes a child a kid is when they become aware of their or their or other kids' late bloomingness. Like, right, right now... Like my daughter, um, she's she's great and she's smart, but like she has some like weird speech things where sometimes her, you know, she does R's as W's. She has what they used to call a lisp a little bit. She has a friend who sleeps in a diaper and none of that is a big deal. But like then what happens when you get to that age? I, I might be jumping ahead, but like, I think something happens at like probably around eight, nine, definitely but by 10, where you're intensely aware of who around you is a late bloomer at something or is not where they should be yet. And then yourself. Uh, awareness or concern about what you're a late bloomer about like well that, that's one of the i would say that's one of the the stages that you can be a late bloomer in that stage is awareness of how others see you and awareness of sort of social norms and those milestones that in itself being aware that these milestones exist is itself a milestone for you to be because parents are aware of it like but when the parents are aware of like potty training and it's like well he's three and a half wait like the kid doesn't know that people he's right. supposed to potty train by three and a half right but at a certain point the kid realizes that there are milestones and that in itself is a milestone and, um, and, and, and it, it continued to it can continue to a kid like haven't we all met a little boy who hits something like puberty a little early and he has no idea that he's stinky where like you could be really actually weirdly advanced and has like the weird you got the, the the chest acne and the weird mustache and the thing that little little kids get you know when they're going into puberty where like you know that in that point it all comes down to some kind of a disconnect between the different parts of you whether it's age or whether it's physicality or whether it's emotional growth a huge a potentially huge disconnect between at least two of those things right you know, like, like, yeah, I just think of like kids I knew when I was like 10 or 11, the little bo- the boys who were starting to get tall and get big and their voices were starting to change. They were constantly like falling over everything and tripping over their own feet because their own body was growing faster than they were able to cope with it. But so it wasn't their body that was behind. It was, it was the rest of their insides that hadn't caught up with it. So it doesn't have to be just physical. It can be emotional. It can be all those different things. Yeah. And, and like, I, I think this, this topic is meaningful because of uh, I think I was a late bloomer in a lot of things, and I think that has kind of shaped who I was. And because I'm kind of uh, pushing back against the idea of the, the thing I just described of a late bloomer is like, well, it took a long time for them to do whatever, but when they finally did whatever, it was amazing. Because I think that's all that you hear about, because those are good stories. But a lot of times, you're a late bloomer, and it's really bad that you're late. Because everyone else has moved on, and this is talking about missing your window. Oh, and it's, and you're it's, never, it's just it's just frankly too late. You're never going to get. I mean, you can get better, but you're never going to get a chance to uh, you know to, to pick one like you know we're just going to put it under girls because that's the that's what we both like. Mm-hmm. Um, you're never going to get a chance to figure out girls with the rest of your peers if you don't do it until you're 21, right? All the rest of your peers, for the most part. Or sort of, you know, whatever age, you know, we're going through puberty and then the girls start noticing the guys and the guys are noticing the girls, right? And 
everyone kind of works that out over a multi-year span with sort of like the you know the middle of the the bell curve or whatever and most people are figuring that out if for whatever reason you are not figuring it out with the rest of them you can figure it out on your own or with a different peer group but that is the prime time like that is where you're going to get the most support that's going to where you know that's going to be where everyone else is doing this activity like you know for example if you hit puberty really early really late it may be harder to have support and conversations with peers about the experience of going through puberty because either they have no idea what you're talking about or they've already done it and it's old hat and and they don't want to hear about you doing it and they just look down on you for it right uh-huh. so being a late bloomer can shape you because or an early bloomer i suppose depending on what it is um because you don't it, it feels like it, it's a form of alienation like you feel like you are different than everyone else because everyone else did this thing whatever it was and you are past the milestone where you realize there are milestones so you know everyone else either has already gone through it or isn't going through it yet and you feel weird and different because of it and you don't have the support system that you would if you were going through it at the same time as everybody else is there anything you can think of for yourself that you oh my feel god like you are no. super early or super late to no i mean actually this is so much richer than i even originally thought because um uh you th- I, I remember being about i don't know first of all like i am such a straight cis male i have really i feel like it's like it's like woody allen it's like um annie hall where like i feel like i didn't even have a latent period i i always really liked little girl <laughs> excuse me let me rephrase that from the time that i was little i was very attracted to girls of my age and had quote unquote little girlfriends not with not even with kissing and stuff but just with like oh like that's a thing but i remember by the time that i was about 10 um and 10 even even back in 1977 10 was an age when some girls well obviously the girls were so much more mature than the boys but the girls were starting to look more like young women and some of the men, the boys were starting to look more like young men. I I was a real shrimpy little fat kid. But I remember this, this, I think one of the most fundamental feelings of being a tween and a young teen was this, just this kind of impossible sense of yearning for something. And not even really knowing exactly what it was. I might articulate in terms of, I want a girlfriend, or I want to go to the skating rink with this person, or whatever. I could put that in these fairly mundane terms, but that didn't even really get at it. The, the, the real yearning was to understand more about what was going on. And no number of pamphlets or books or explanations from patient and kind adults could make me f- have feel any less of that yearning. It was, it was the fundamental... Like apart from the melancholy, it was like the the fundamental fact of life for me at that age. Even though I was not a morose or you know fundamentally unhappy kid, but you talk about the year I was in military school. I mean, it was rough because I could see people around me already participating in this conversation. I feel like I, I didn't even understand. You know what I mean? Where they just they seemed to have no problem like talking to girls and jostling and getting in fights and doing all this like you know big boy stuff. And I was like, I, I don't I don't even have an inroad to this. I, I don't even know I don't even know what room to show up in for this. Do you know what I mean? But you were you were interested in girls early, which actually gives you a leg up because in in one of the uh, various cruel twists of fate, as you just mentioned, girls mature fast. Girls hit this milestone before boys. So basically, the girls, it, generally speaking, the girls notice the boys before the boys notice the girls. Mm-hmm. Um, and, my, my daughter informed know. me today that on the way home from camp, she informed me that she. This is literally what she said. She's like, just so you know, um, most girls are smarter than most boys. No offense. And the boys who think they're really smart are not actually that smart. 
This is what my seven-year-old told me today. In terms of emotional intelligence, she's, she's totally right. right. Because, because they mature right. fa- at that age. They they are ahead on that milestone. They mature faster. That's why they are noticing the boys, and the boys are not noticing. For the most part, again, bell curves, blah, 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 outliers. Sounds like you were an outlier and that you were probably noticing the girls without understanding what the hell noticing meant around the same time that the girls were starting to notice the boys. So at the very least, you, uh, you know... <laughs> You had you had someone to reciprocate because there were girls that were noticing boys and you were a boy who was noticing girls and pretty much the rest of the boys, for the most part, were not noticing girls at that point. So you kind of had a leg up there. But on the other hand, you didn't have any boys to discuss girls with because they were still into frogs and hitting each other with sticks. Kind of. But I mean, it was more like I felt like I was in the stadium and understood what sport was being played, but no way was I ever getting anywhere near the field. Yeah, well, you know, like it's the, the girls are in the same situation. They they, yeah, they yeah. like they like ponies and the concept of a prince. So, so what's, and what's, a the con- what's the contrast for you? Uh, well, so I was the opposite. Uh, I had a blessedly girl-free existence for a very long time, as in, did not cross my mind that I, that there was anything. You know, I I mean, I I talked to them, I suppose. I you know, like it was just one undifferentiated sea of humanity. <laughs> you know, in in terms of for a long, long time. Wait, um, just just to clarify though, it's 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 not anything that was like. Like you're just like ooh, ick, ick, no girls allowed. It was yeah, just the, pe- there was some people, of that. people in general were just not your thing. But but there was some of that. Like there's always the end of the girls with the cooties and you know the things like that. But like it was, you've seen it happen with your own kids. Like when you, you your kids are little, they play in groups. Girls and boys are together. At a certain point, they split. There's nothing you can do about it. It just happens. The girls play with the girls. The boys play with the boys. There's still overlap, but they they start spreading apart. And yep. to some parents, that's disappointing. You're like, oh, I remember when all the boys and girls would play together. Why are they playing separate? They start developing at different rate. They start having different interests. And it's like, there's nothing you can do about it. And it's certain, it reaches a fever pitch at a certain point where they're just like totally segregated. But like, you know, like a fifth grade dance or something where it's just like boys and girls. It might be, well, be the Red Sea. It's just, it's just, like, a, it's just like a, a cruel social experiment. Like to even pretend like that could work out. Right. And so it's, that separation happens. And during that time, uh, a lot of the boys, me included, like you understand that there's some sort of separation there and you understand the girls might have some kind of energy, but like within you, there is no innate desire for anything having to do with girls other than a- as an activity to join in with the boys, like, you know, uh, tease the girls or make fun. But it's not it's not like you're teasing them because you're flirting with them. You don't even know what flirting is. You don't know, like you have no desire for that whatsoever. Mm-hmm. I was in that phase for a really long time, which is great because like I tell my <laughs> I tell my son now, probably talk to, tell, shouldn't be telling your children. It's like, <laughs> Enjoy it while you can, because right now he's really into, like, Pokemon, or he's been into Minecraft and Destiny. I remember when I was into all those things, completely unclouded by any thought <laughs> of, of girls. Oh. And I said, this will, this will change, so enjoy it while you can, because that will enter your life and pretty much never leave it. I don't know, I'm not an old man yet, but, I, like, I'm pretty sure it never goes away, um, which is fine. <laughs> but anyway, I had I had that sort of childhood like that where I just wasn't interested. And then, of course, you know... Puberty happens and you wake up one day. I think for me it was like seventh grade. You just wake up one day and it's there. And you look at a girl and something is different. And something is different in a very dramatic way. And you don't know what it is yet, but you know something is different. Uh, um, that's puberty. Well, it's and I, kind of like Inside Out, right? When the, the we all, I think we all laughed along at the scene where the boy meets, you know, uh, talking to Riley at the at the skating rink. Yeah. That, that was and a pretty good approximation of how my brain felt a lot of the time. That's after you realize, I, I have a specific memory of going to my bus stop, which was in front of my house, and seeing the girl who lived down the road from me, 
as if I had seen her for the very first time. <laughs> and I couldn't even, I look at her for a second and it was like everything lit up inside my entire head like a Christmas tree and I had to avert my eyes and look away. And then you would turn your head back because you want to look again and you would look away and you turn like, one day that was not there, the next day I woke up and it was there. I remember, I remember the day, I remember the person, it's like, all right, well. It was really that, that clear. Yes, I still have a totally vivid memory of that happening. Like I could not even look at her. It, because of like the things that it would you know the things that would turn on in my head it was just unbelievable and then like you know that has not tailed off really all right so so i had that period before that like all up until seventh grade other people were t- i remember on the sixth grade field trip i had friends of mine who were like holding hands with each other putting their arms around each other flirting sending notes it was amusing to see them doing this i didn't understand what the point of it was it just seemed stupid to me like maybe i thought it was like play acting like adults because i saw adults do these things but i had no idea what it was that they were getting out of this at all and then you know by seventh grade i did um i think i was pretty much on schedule for that i maybe there was a hard line between them and there was less of a you know sort of creeping i think think on the bell curve seventh grade is is the big year for boys yeah and i think that's pretty much on schedule right so that's i don't think i was a late bloomer in that respect but the other things we have in the notes here that are related to that is like all right so you have these feelings welcome to puberty congratulations here's your stick of deodorant um (laughs) Here's your zit cream. <laughs> Had those things too. Uh, what do you What do you do with those? How does that manifest? How do you the perils of the Italian American teenager? Yeah. How, how, did, how do you My work that out? My best friend in eighth grade had it so bad. He had the worst acne. He had the chest acne. He had the chest hair, and he was gay. Neither of us would talk about it, but my, my best friend in eighth grade was totally gay. He was like a six foot tall kid from Brooklyn who had moved to Florida, and I was his only friend. <laughs> and I felt to this day, I still feel so bad for this guy. I just, when you say that, I just, I see him, and it just, it causes me so much pain. Can you imagine being my friend, that being that kid in Florida, being like a six foot tall gay fourteen year old in Florida? Oh seemed like, you seem like you'd have a, a be a good friend to have. We were no, we were great friends. We went to Disney World. We had a great time. There you go. <sighs> but yeah, I, I had the back acne. That's, oh that's no, thing. yuck! Oh, yeah, you no, poor I had kid. Never, never, yeah, I, but so that's that's part of going along with like these these feelings that arrived on time, but the ability to deal with them or do anything about them did not arrive because of my other difficulties in dealing with other people how you know you've got these feelings what can you do with them like and this is this was the time seventh eighth ninth tenth grade where people are working out how to you know i don't know how to deal with the opposite sex how to go on dates how to go to dances how to you know like do all that stuff like that's when people are working it out uh and and they seem so so they seem so fearless about it it just seemed like you know what I mean? I didn't mean to interrupt you, but but like I would just watch that and go like, God, I, I mean, I know this is probably still hard for you, but you, I don't know. How did you even decide to do that? Like what what pieces did you put together to even begin to make that happen? Yeah, well, you you it's like you realized at that point that you you needed like you need it took, takes two to tango. You needed another willing participant to they don't know what they're doing either. It's like you don't know and they don't know, but they want someone needs to want to work it out with you. Right. You need to like show interest in someone and then it just has to come back and you have to both like sort of dance around each other and figure it out like you know these kids don't know like just someone's gonna ask someone on a date someone's gonna hold someone's hand someone's gonna make someone laugh someone's gonna hang out with someone someone's gonna you know that's gotta work itself out but you need somebody else it's, you can't just do this on your own you can't force it to happen right yeah. and certain people just sort of 
went together. And it didn't like, it, you know, the ideal scenario is two attractive people. The attractive boy is attracted to the attractive girl. Luckily, the attractive girl is attracted to the attractive boy. Bingo! You've got them. They find each other. They're fine. Unfortunately, the unattractive boys and girls, the unattractive boys are not attracted to the unattractive girls, and the unattractive girls are not attracted to the unattractive boys, so they are alienated. Or the, un the girls and boys who aren't confident, not just looks, well, but, you know, like everything yeah. else, like who when you aren't good talking to people, who aren't good socially, who aren't interesting, who can't hold a conversation, who don't, you know, don't know how to dress themselves, who have bad hygiene, like there's a million things that can keep people away from each other, right? And right. those people have trouble finding each other. Well, yeah, and that's why, I mean, I, I, I hate to put it this bluntly, but that's where when you talk about attractiveness i mean attractiveness is not this this single axis or this single vector part of attractiveness at that age uh sure it's things like looks sure it's things like you know charisma but there's also something to of, of like status we're like yep. I, I i don't want to overstate this because I, I i but i think like the idea of getting a good girlfriend or the idea of getting a good boyfriend or you know what i mean like the, the, it's it's like it's the trope that's played out in like every brady bunch style show we've ever seen is like oh the captain of the football team likes me it's not just he doesn't even have a name yet all that matters is that he's handsome and he's the captain of the football team yeah. and i'm not disparaging this but i think that that is ultimately what makes it difficult is if you're like a little shrimpy kid like you have so much against you that's not even just your looks it's all those consequences of not being like a high status like uh, alpha player that's part of what the kids are doing is sort of uh it's like a, a playmobile a build your own society thing absolutely where you choose, well, it's, choose like, the it's, it's like planet of the apes yeah, you choose these axes along which people are going to be judged, and you line up among them. I remember thinking vividly, also in middle school or whatever, that I would, that even if some particular girl was interested in me, I would never, you know, be interested back because of that girl's status. She was one of the weird ones, and if I was dating a weird one, that would just further my weird status. Like all these terrible thoughts <laughs> I don't you need have, that. Because, <laughs> right? But, you know, all these terrible thoughts that you have because. It just everything is so much about status. It's like, you know, it, it is a little terrible miniature society built around things that actually mean nothing, right? Um, and so many different facets that, that are keeping people away from each other. The people who seem to effortlessly just find each other are high status, attractive in all the ways that you can be attractive. Um, and sometimes, like, the ratios, like, you could have just some super ugly kid who is the captain of the football team and is really outgoing, no problem. You could have some super handsome kid who's a goth, no one's going to look at him, right? Like, physical attractiveness is almost meaningless because, you know, many, many of the people I knew in school, like the shrimpy kids, the short ones, the ones that were weird looking, th that can so easily be overcome by other attributes like confidence and uh, and humor and social status and how well you get along with people and who you know and how much money your parents have and all right. sorts of other things that, right. that factor into it. But anyway, so there's that... There's that thing playing out, and everyone gets a chance to sort of participate in that. Like, eventually, I feel like even the weirdos kind of find each other. Like, that, that, I think that's more true in, in high school, where like the band kids pair off with the band kids, the future yep. farmers get together. There's a, there's a lot more of that, like, satisficing at my status. And, and in some ways, it's a nice kind of no BS approach of like, you know, of like, I just, I just want to be with somebody and have it not be weird. Yeah, and, and really, like, what you end up doing is, is sort of rejecting the idea that there's one social ladder for the entire school and decide that there's a different ladder among the band kids. And then you realize you're dating the highest status person in band, and that's all you care about. Uh, and, you know, we're, we're working our way up to, to actually caring about who the heck the other person is. Like, we're not at that stage yet, right? It's still Yeah, it's but still in, infatuation is, is uh, what a time. I mean, I've, I've 
had infatuations that were just overwhelming. Like into my early 30s, I would have infatuations that were just, and I, I, I start to wonder if it's something chemical in me that like makes me so susceptible for just crushing so incredibly hard on somebody for reasons that I, that I can't completely understand. Well, that's, I mean, we talked about this in a couple episodes. That That is, the rational part of your brain should step in there and say, you realize you're just obsessing over this person because it's a stupid question. You're not oh, even please. thinking about that person as another person. <laughs> like, is that, is that part stepping a little bit, especially by the time you're in your 30s and go, okay, come on. Like, cause everyone has crushes, uh, right? But I think you don't that, understand a crush. If you, if you, if I do, I do. I had plenty of them. But like, the, you, you know, when you're a kid in middle school and high school, the crush is like the end of the world. But after you've gone through six or seven of them, hopefully you figure out like, wait a second, I see what's going on There's here. This doesn't here. make any sense. I'm not even thinking of that person but, as a human being. But let's focus for just another minute on on, on the, the junior high, middle school kind of stuff because that's that's really that's the that's, that's right. the crucible. Yeah, yeah. So I didn't I didn't get uh, so the late bloomer thing. The reason right. I'm bringing all this up is because I have that you know I'm on time for puberty. I'm on time for noticing girls, but because of all the other things that I've discussed in terms of not being able to deal with well with other people of any gender or anything, just not getting along well with people, not understanding, not being empathetic with them, being weird, being into different things that other people are into, slowly starting to write off other people, assuming they're not going to be interested in the things that I'm interested in. So it's no point of even engaging with them through middle school, the two years of middle school, seventh and eighth for me, I basically, you know, through, observing everything else going on around me and not being able to find any way into it essentially opted out of that entire system i said well that thing that everyone else is doing mm-hmm. figuring out how they can pair off boy girl <laughs> that is obviously not a thing that i'm that's not a thing that i'm going to do no so thank i am you. <laughs> i am going to be a non-combatant and not, not no thank you like i definitely wanted to but it's like it's just not going to happen for me like so i the best thing i can do the worst thing you can do is to keep trying to you know, find uh, a way to do it. You, get the, you just, get the stink of desperation. Right. It's just terrible. And so it was just like, I'm just not going to participate in that system at all. That's the safest thing I can do. I will not express interest to anyone. I don't have to worry about anyone having any interest in me. And so I'm free and clear. And that is a terrible strategy. <laughs> I'll just begin my, my new young career as a radio control car eunuch. <laughs> yes. It is a terrible, terrible strategy. Uh, but that nevertheless, like, so wait, I, wait, there was a while though where you thought you could beat biology. There's a th- you thought I, I didn't you th- think I was beating it. I think basically it's like a survival thing of like, how how can I optimize the this experience for my happiness? Mm-hmm. And it's like, trying that thing was making me miserable. If I do it this way, I can have friends who are girls, which I did. I can have friends who are guys. We can all kind of hang out. My, guys and, my guy and girlfriends can have their own significant others, and that will be fine. I can talk to them about it. I can advise them on that. <laughs> but I am not... I am a non-combatant because... I'm not going to pursue anything because my my ex- brief my brief experience has shown me that pursuing anything is pointless because no girls are interested in me and because no girls are interested in me I won't have to worry about them pursuing me so I'm out and that's a bad strategy because everyone else is figuring it out everyone else is doing all the stupid things that you do figuring out what you know breaking up and and with each other every two weeks and do it like they're doing the stuff and I was not participating and when I was in it it felt like this is a pretty good strategy like I was fine like it it let me not have to worry about that. I wasn't like, when I had a crush on someone, it was the same way you'd have a crush on like a movie star. You're never going to meet them in real life. <laughs> right, like, you know, right, right, Scarlett right. Johansson is never going to like return your affection. So it's safe. It's like a thing you could do, which I did from afar and it was fine. And it wasn't even like in the 80s, you know, John Hughes movie where like you have a crush on your best friend. Nope, didn't have that either. It was just, everything was fine. Um, I don't know what my end game was. I don't think I had like, all right, so play this out. How does this work exactly? You do this, you opt out entirely and then 
then what happens? Like you live alone right. for the rest of your life? Is that is that how the strategy did goes? You, did you think in your head like, well, I mean, the, the obvious one, even if you're being rational, is just the pleasure pain principle where it's like, I know that the more I tilt at this particular windmill, the more miserable I become and the more publicly exposed and vulnerable I am as a weirdo. So the, the, the pleasure pain kind of principle would say like, well, so if I do decide to opt out of this particular survey, maybe I can just kind of wait this out. Yeah, there was, I mean, the, the strongest vibe I had, if you had asked the, the teenage me what was going on, is it would have been a, uh, a you know, a non-musical version of the future soon, which would have been, all right, <laughs> now everything is a mess and I'm, I'm the weirdo. Right. But, like, it's going to be the future soon. I won't always be this way. Like, eventually, like, I could see... That eventually I could see that the world of high school was so unrelated to to the rest of the world. Yeah. And I, I was super into computers and I thought they were gonna change the world and they totally did. Uh and that was gonna be my thing. And in that value system, knowing a lot of stuff about computers would turn out not to be uh a weird, useless thing. That seems totally actually, reasonable for the time. That does not seem I mean, obviously, if you're you know in a Jonathan Colton song in, in your as an adult, that's weird. But I don't know. I don't think that that doesn't seem like a crazy thought. That I would not have felt that as a crazy thought at the time. But I mean, it, it seems reasonable. It seems like it, because it was a lot of things that the smart kids were telling each other, like all the nerdy kids who were sort of ostracized. There was a heavy, super heavy streak of anti-intellectualism in my childhood. Uh, so the smart kids, like no one wanted to be smart. Being smart was the worst thing you could ever do. Ugh. Yeah, yeah, I know. Like I don't, even, I don't think it's that bad these days. But who knows? I haven't. My kids haven't gotten up to that age yet. But anyway, we would tell each other that someday, like we would talk about college. Where college was the idea of like being smart in college is not a bad thing. That and that was pretty much borne out. Like it is not, it is not a you know like. It's eventually, everyone would be going like, oh, now it's time to get into college. And all of a sudden, being smart is actually kind of a good thing, right? Because everyone wants to get into the good college. Even like the you know the captain of the football team wants to get into a good college or whatever. Uh, and then it was like we're going to leave these this little miniature society behind and go into a larger one where our attributes will have some value. And at that point, uh, you know, it, I mean. You can just listen to the song, and and the the, the part know, of the a, song that's actually my favorite Jonathan Colton song. It's a, it's a great one, and it was one of the and and I think the part of the song that really resonates with me, and as a, as an adult, I think I've talked about this when we talked about Jonathan Colton on the Incomparable, is that in the song, you know, he's he's going through all these things, and he's he's got interest in a girl, and he sees that she's with someone else, and she just looks at him with pity, and like that's kind of like it was my middle school thing, like you know, where I was just opting out, of him. and he's like, you know, eventually, I you know. I, I won't always be like this. Eventually, the, the, my attributes will have value. What he ends up doing is just <laughs> like, you know, building a robot army and overreaching and saying, no, you will be mine, becomes an evil genius, right? And that, <laughs> that he still ends up destroying the thing that he, is, right. that, that he wants. Right? And the, so the thing that it's such a Harry Chapin song because the thing that he made essentially to, uh, whether he remembers it or not, the thing that he made to impress her is the thing that blinded her. <laughs> Right, and and that it, that he's going to have her by any means necessary. It's like you don't understand now. He becomes an evil, and that's you know that's artistic license, right? But so the, the the real world version of that is by not participating in that whole system through all the years of high school for the most part. Um, I was not like I was not building up. The, that was my downfall. Like I was not building up the tools I would need to understand what relationships are. I was just putting it off, and just putting it off was not helping. I wasn't gaining any good experience. I right, should have that, been the window. The window was still there. The window was maybe closing a little bit and it wasn't something as much as you could like avoid the pain of having to confront that. What you may not have realized is that time was still marching on. And so was your body. 
Right. And so I'm using my brain to come up with this great strategy of like how I'm going to deal with this. And really, it's just setting me up for future failure instead of being like, oh, everything will be fine later. It's like, and then you're going to use all the skills you've learned to know how to, because no one wants to like, and it gets worse as you get older. Like if I had right. been like into my 40s and still had, you know, well, you'd be on, you'd be on Reddit to a girl. Yeah. Like no one, no one wants to deal with that. No one wants a 40 year old who doesn't know how to talk to a girl and is all nervous about it. like, you're supposed to be like that in seventh and eighth grade. You're supposed to figure it out then. Um, so that... That was definitely my, I think my biggest late blooming thing, like dealing with other people and secondarily dealing with my feelings about girls kind of came to a head by the end of high school where like, as in so many things, like a girl actually was interested in me and that sort of made me have to deal with this in some way. And it was mostly a disaster, but like at least it happened in high school and not in college where I had a different set of disasters, but like I eventually figured it out, you know, uh, barely, but boy, it was not not the uh, the uh, suggested schedule, and so I, I think that is my biggest late blooming experience, and it's a great example of like, well, he, you know, he didn't speak until he was five, but then he was brilliant, right? No, I he didn't, uh, you know, have any interaction with girls until he was much older, and he was terrible at it. <laughs> and like that's right. how it actually works out. Is if you miss your window whenever else is doing it, and you're a super late bloomer usually not that good for you and your parents don't repeat that story to other people they don't say little timmy didn't date until he was 25 and then he was a terrible date this episode of reconcilable differences is brought to you in part by hover 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 is quite simply the best way to buy and manage domain names it's the best place out there for buying a domain name and it is easily my favorite place for doing stuff with that domain once it's yours you can learn more right now by visiting hover.com Hover provides a simple, fast, and hassle-free method of buying domain names. You do not want to be faced with a thousand screens and a ton of add-ons and high prices. Let's be honest, registering a domain at some of those other places feels like you're running a gauntlet. You are not going to get that with Hover. You just go to Hover.com, enter the phrase you want or some keywords, and Hover will find the best available matches for you, show you a list of all the top-level domains that are available. And of course, Hover has all the TLDs you'd expect like .com, .co, and .me. But they also have all of those crazy new TLDs you've heard about, like .tattoo, .fish, and .equipment. Hover has recently lowered the prices on pretty much all of the 200-plus options that they have. For example, right now, .com domains are just starting at $12.99. That's crazy. Remember, that low price you pay for a domain at Hover does include who is privacy in the price. Any domain name that allows it, they will cover your who is privacy for free. Hover believes that you shouldn't have to pay to keep your private information private. Uh, again, unlike some of those other places, it's a great service. Hover also has fantastic customer support. They have a no hold, no wait, no transfer telephone support policy. That means when you call Hover for help, you will be connected with an actual human being who will stay on the phone with you until you find out what you need to find out. And of course, they have lots of help documents and things if you don't want to talk to people. That's not required. They'll help you out any way they can. Hover has so much great stuff. They have volume discounts, bulk domain renewal uh, discounts, custom email addresses, storage and forwarding, and so much more awesome stuff. So if you're in the market for some sweet new domains, or maybe you're ready to move your current domains to a place that treats you like an adult, please give Hover a try. Great part is you can get 10% off your first purchase and show your support for our program by going to hover.com and using the special code corrections at checkout corrections. Our thanks to hover for making pretty much everything about domain names a breeze and for supporting reconcilable differences. 
Yeah, and so that's those are the stories you don't hear about. about well, no, and you know what that is. I mean, this is you. You're a parent. You know what that is. It's you know, and I, I I've talked about this on Blue in the Face. That's the kind of story that people tell because they're proud of what they survived. And in that case, it's the parent. It's the parent who sat and fretted. We worried our daughter yeah. was a late talker, and my I, I I figured it'll probably be fine. My wife was nearly apoplectic for a while. We took her to speech therapy. She's fine. She's a real normal kid who talks and stuff. But like, there was a point where like everybody's got something about their kid where they're like, is this going to turn out to be a pod person? And I because I screwed something up. So that's that's really the parent going like, did I lose my window on getting this kid to be right? And the fact that they dodged a bullet turned out to be a normal middle of the bell curve person. Now that's a victory for them. Yeah, well, and the more people they tell that story to, the more they feel reassured about it themselves. What's well, like the pregnancy wrote... stories about the tears and everything? Yeah. Like everybody always wants to share their stories about their tears because that's what they're proudest of. You know that they they survived that. Yeah, and it's it's a it's a form of self reassurance by repeatedly telling other people that it all worked out in the end. You were convincing yourself that it all worked out in the end and that it wasn't a big deal or whatever. Um, did you follow the link? Or, I'm sure you're familiar with this, but did you follow the link to the Erickson stages? I'm not familiar with this, but I did follow the link. Yeah, I, I remember uh, first hearing about this in probably the high school high school psychology class and a little more in college psychology. This is one of those pages where, like, okay, this is a thought technology. This is a model. This is so incredibly general, but you see, you read, you read the table a little bit. I, I know the one that ends with self-actualization, which, which scale well, is that? Well, that's the one that I feel like I've really, really screwed up. But, you know, <laughs> but basically Erickson said that at every, there are these stages in life, these whatever, eight or, eight or nine stages of life where there are there's a crisis that that a a human faces at a certain point um and that basically how well you whether i'm gonna just screw this up probably but but the idea is that there are certain crises that we face and how well we did at that crisis of this versus that has a big effect on what you'll be able to do in the future and i'll tell you man every time i look at this and i read this it kind of scares the crap out of me because it gets to the whole window issue do we need to describe what we mean by that? Like a window of opportunity. Like, for example, if you want to enter this contest, you have from this day to that day. If you decide to enter the contest after that day, it doesn't matter because that window has closed. And this is, to me, an extreme example of that. It, admittedly, like I say, a model and a heuristic, but some of these really, uh, I think, make a lot of sense. Two to four years old. Um, the basic psychological crisis. Autonomy versus shame and doubt. Uh, the question being, is it okay to be me? So, like, did you survive toilet training and clothing yourself and, and uh, clothing yourself and stuff like that? Uh, jumping forward a little bit, um, I mean, I, the, the stakes. <laughs> I guess you could stay, say the stakes are big for all of these. But you look at something like twenty to thirty-nine. Like, I don't know how well I did at twenty to thirty-nine. Intimacy versus isolation. Somewhere between the ages of 20 and 39, you have to answer the question, can I love and can I be loved? And that usually, as it says here, plays itself out in romantic relationships. But like, I, the reason this, this is so troubling and sticky to me is like, it, I really do feel like it's sort of like what you just described with trying to opt out of puberty, where it's like, you know, the thing is you can decide that, you know, you're not going to play football. You can decide you're not going to go to the circus, but you don't you can even think you've decided not to mature on schedule, but that ends up being a terrible decision. Like for some stuff, if you decided like you're not going to be into music for a while, that's one thing. But deciding that like you don't have to stay caught up on whether your emotions in your body are moving forward can have huge like ongoing ramifications. Yeah. And like for, for me, the other the model of this was like opting out was also kind of saying that like it's not, it, trying to frame it as a choice but it's not really a choice because it's basically me repeatedly convincing myself that this is never going to happen for you 
that this is not a thing that is ever going to be for you. This is going to be a thing for other people. Other people have boyfriends and girlfriends. You do not. Uh, and there's nothing you can do about that. And so your best option is to make your peace with that and then frame it as a choice and say, I am choosing to be a non-combatant because I think that's the best thing. And maybe that will change in the future. But then like years of that, especially those particular formative years, was just, just destroying my self-image. Basically, like I was convincing myself that I was unlovable, that I was that no one was going to want to well, have anything the, to do with the me. cognitive dissonance of like the the amount of mental and emotional effort it takes to keep pushing that away as it becomes like more and more uh, something you can't avoid. I mean, yeah, and especially, like, especially a boy during puberty, like you have these desires that are just insanely strong and like, and you like, and then repeatedly telling yourself that, well, the, the strongest desire in your entire life, the, the strongest desire you're probably ever going to have in your entire life, unless you're like defending your child from a bear, uh, there's nothing you can do about that. One. See, I think the desire may be more for you, but for me, the, the desire was a big part, but for me, it was the, the the utterly mounting befuddlement that there's any way I can possibly understand what's happening, let alone, I, I'm always making that distinction because it's one thing to go, oh, I don't know if I will ever be able to be good at baseball. Like it's another thing to go, like, I, I, I don't know if I'll ever even understand what baseball is. So like for me, like in, in there, are, there are points, the lowest points in puberty for me were, were like, I, I don't even deserve to like be bad at this. I don't even, I don't understand the rules. I don't understand the context. I watch these people doing things and it's like they're in a completely different world. Now I realize most people feel that way. But like, but like the, to me, again, to go straight back to toilet training, like what if a kid goes, you know what? This toilet training thing sucks. I liked it better when I had a diaper on. And your parents go, well, you know, I know this is difficult for you. So let's just stick with the diaper. That's not great because it's actually critically important that you, you break through the wall of how uncomfortable and awful that is for you you know, because no matter how many times I tell you, tell you this, you won't get this, but you're going to be okay. But you do have to get through it. And avoiding that pain is not going to make it better in the long run. I think you were much more self-aware than I was because you understood at least that you didn't understand. You I knew that I was confused. <laughs> in your stages of competency thing, of like you knew that there were a lot of things that you didn't know. I didn't even know the things I didn't know. Like, I, I mean... You, you were like that. You were a pre-novice. <laughs> that's what, yeah, that's what you're supposed to work out. You're supposed to, like, you have to travel the road of, like, you have the desires. You got to figure out how you negotiate them. You have to eventually, you have to pretty quickly arrive at the point where you start dealing with the, the person you're attracted to as a person. And if you don't, like, if they're always a, an abstract concept backed by, like, uh, teenage lust, you're never going to get to the point where you realize, oh, there are other people and you have to like, and it's so weird, like the, the disconnect is I had plenty of like girls who were friends and I could interact with them as people, but it's like the only way I can interact with them as people is if I just set aside all that other stuff and just took it completely out of the picture. And it never made the connection that like the only way you're ever going to really do this is stop, you know, it's not all about you. It's about you know, like just, and you have, if you don't figure that out in middle school and high school, you are in a really bad place. Like, I, and I, I'm looking at this chart here of this Erickson scale. I think but the adulthood phases of it are super stretched out. I know adults that never reach a lot of these phases. I know right. adults who never start thinking of their significant other as a person, but it's just like a, you know, a, a particular role in their life and they, they, well, they have bad there, relationships there and they're a lot unhappy. Of people, they just look at them as a problem or a project is the way a lot of us look at our spouses. They're a problem or a project and maybe both where it's like it's a problem to be dealt with or it's a project to be improved. Or it's a thing that you have to have like a car, like a status symbol because you have to be married right, and right. it's good to have kids and you like kids and like, you know, thinking things of like, you know, who am I? Who can I be? Like some people, I just, 
they reach these phases. I, I think the year numbers, after you get past like 5 to 12, the year numbers are basically meaningless because can I make my life count 40 to 64? I feel like I had already dealt with that in my 20s. Like, But other right. people are going to deal with all the bottom four all at once when they're 41. Right, and you just right. like there's no, you never but know. But that's I think that's I don't know. I think it, if it's not implicit, um, I, I think that this is you're looking at the chapters of, of your PCAM uh, textbook. It's cumulative, or it's in the sense of like you don't get to pass the generativity versus stagnation test until you've gotten through and passed or failed the intimacy versus isolation. That's the part about this that's so brutal, and this is where the window part becomes so like personally harmful to me is like I wonder how many of these I got wrong in this model in a way that makes it difficult or impossible for me to succeed with the future ones because they really are they are built it's like a, you know the pyramid they're all built on top of each other yeah and the, wor- the worst thing about it for me looking at the later ones in the scale is like a lot of the times the experience of being an adult is feeling like it is impossible to actually pass any of these milestones. Basically, you're hanging on to every one of these milestones by the tips of your fingernails. And at any point, you can lose your complete grip. It's like, you know what? I thought I had that one licked, but actually, no. Like, the, the, just it could right. all fall apart in a second because it's like, you know, can I make it in the world of people and things? And you feel like you're just hanging on to that one. Like, you feel like, hey, I'm, you know, right. I'm 15, 16 years old. I got my license. I can drive to the store and buy food. Like, And it's just like... Now I'm 40 and I still feel like I'm hanging on to the ability to make it in the world of people and things barely by the tips of my fingers. And every day it could be a slip off, like, you know. Right. (laughs) But, you know, I wish there was a word. It's probably a German word. I wish there was a word for something between, like, sympathy and disgust. Like, when I look at at the, the Reddit Gamergate fedora crowd, like, there's this part of me that, like... I, I sympathy is the wrong word and complete disgust is the wrong word. But it's when I see those men acting the way that they're acting and having absolutely zero self-awareness about how just screwed up they, they are. And the more they dig into this belief that they're actually defending something very important. I mean, it's it becomes difficult not to see them as stunted as delayed, like they're as as, stun- as stunted teens, as as people who never got into that phase of understanding. I'm not actually in love with the person. I'm in love. I'm I'm infatuated with the idea of this sexy girl liking me. That's so different. And like 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 obviously, now you get to be you get in your twenties or thirties, and you go like, oh, am I really in love with that person? Am I? Am, and what do I mean by love? Well, love means I care more about about their welfare than mine. Is that really how I feel? Well, no, it's not. You just want to masturbate on a poster while you're wearing a hat. That's a completely different kind of thing. These are actual people. When you say these things to these women, you're talking to somebody's sister or somebody's daughter or somebody's anybody. You're talking to another human being. It's just that you never got... And do you see what I'm saying, though, about like disgust and sympathy? Because I see it, and it's like, to me, I, it's so clear that they missed some of these milestones, and I, 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 I pity them because they may not ever be able to understand why they are the way they are and why like history in this case is going to keep showing them to be basically slightly advanced middle schoolers so what someone would say to you is that you shouldn't be conceptualizing them as their role in relation to someone else someone's sister and daughter that's another lovely anti-pattern like i mean we use it all the time like well i think i think it's pretty effective trying i know but you're trying what you're trying to do is trying to humanize uh you know well, I mean, women to, to other men, and it's like, well, the only way I can get through to you is to to frame them in a way that you have some connection with by saying, okay, I know you can't think of them as entire people, but maybe you can think of them in a relation to someone else, right? 
and now you can conceptualize them as a person because you have that relationship, which is. It, I mean, you, you got you got a better you got you got a better way to get to Johnny Fedora. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm just saying, like, like it's I, 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 well, it's, it's, to, it's fedoras yeah. all the way down is what I'm saying. And like, and, and I totally, I totally understand. I, like, I'm not saying that's the that 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 is the 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 best or most mature way to do it, but we're we're talking about people that are doing that that are that are utterly that basically every time the world tries to move them closer to understanding that this entire planet is made out of people besides them, that makes them dig in further to the idea that that's an incursion on who well, they are and who they're meant to be. Yeah, like, I, here's the thing. A lot of these pathologies, if they survive into adulthood, can find a, an ecosystem that is hospitable to them. That, that there, I would say many, perhaps most adults, including myself, and, uh, you know, it's like have something in them that didn't develop all the way that they nevertheless found sort of like a found a way to live it's like uh, found a way to live a life where that either is not a burden or is actually turned into an asset in some uh in some sphere so try when you think of these people like all these things you're saying about them are true but a lot of people can carve out a life for themselves where they're sort of uh, treatment of other people, of coworkers, of peers, if they're a boss of the, the people who are below them at work, uh, of their friends, of their spouses, of women in general, of other races, as execrable as those things may be, they are in a group, in a society, in a peer group, in a job, in a whatever, where that is accepted as the norm, and they have otherwise productive lives. They feel like they have healthy relationships. They they have they're, a spouse they're, who loves they're, them. They're getting by. They love their they spouse. They, they, they have kids. They, you know, they have a good family life and like they have carved out a place where this particular shape works for them. And that's what we all do in some fashion or another. But it goes bad when the things you're carving out a place for are things that that sort of reveal the fact that you sort of never, never went through this stage of development. That you that's, are, that, that's exactly it. That you are a late bloomer and you just didn't you never figured this out. And you're like, well, I'm going to build a life for myself. Uh, in which my complete uh, inability to understand how to relate to women as people does not hinder me. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, I guess what I was going to say was like, imagine, so look look at the John that I'm talking to right now. I mean, imagine if the John, uh, like, you know, the, the first half dozen times that you steeled yourself to the idea that you were going to be a non-combatant in this, it must have seemed like really grand, like almost like you were some kind of a clergyman, like you were going to be like, I'm going to stay out of this entire game. And like through this pure force of my will and my rational, my seemingly rational mind, I realized that like, this isn't a game I want to play. I'm just going to stay out of this. My my rational mind was getting his ass kicked then. That was all emotional mind. And it was not great. It was not grand. I felt really bad about it, but it was more, it's like min-maxing. Didn't feel rational? That that didn't feel like self-protection? My my emotional, my emotions, I mean, I was, teenage boy in the middle of puberty my See, but i don't buy that i don't me. buy that because that's they were but, controlling me 100 percent. and i kind of knew i was out of control but i was i was, I was it's in rpg pounds i was min maxing or like i said i was it's like trying to figure out what what's the happy what's the, the the medium i can get to here and i think maybe there was the point where i started to try to try to get okay with it started to apply my rational mind to it but that's where i get into the future soon that's why the future soon resonates so much with me is like that in the rational part of my head when engaged to it was like well there's got to be an end game here and you know you don't want to be like this forever so there's got to be something you can do 
to better yourself. So study hard, get into a good school. College will be different. You'll leave these people behind. No one will know who you are. Like a whole nine yards. Like I wasn't getting the part of like, by the way, you wasted all these years and you're going to be, you know, you know, socially stunted when you attempt to do all this stuff in your last year of high school and into college and it will be a mess for you. Uh, But that was, that was the only participation my rational mind had. And the rest of me was just, God, I was a mess. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess, I mean, maybe I'm oversimplifying this, but like you talked about a couple episodes ago, you talked about the the risk of your of one's rational mind coming in after the fact to clean up and to basically take something you that one did that's very, you know, emotional or, or whatever, and then find a reason why we did that. Well, I did that. Well, of course, I you, you literally rationalizing. You're saying- Yeah, I, it's a story I, I would tell myself to try to make myself feel okay with it. I did this because reasons. And I guess I it's just difficult for me sometimes, I don't know, and, and I'm not trying to sound judgy about it, but I'm actually trying to say, like, I feel like I understand that because I've been that. I've, I've been somebody who saw the world as everything that wasn't me. And as the thing that was constantly trying to push against whatever it is I am or what I want to be or more often what I don't want to be. And the thing is like that kind of inward turning um, self-involvement, it doesn't need to ever have an end because, you know, the more that you dig into that, the more you start to really believe and you find instances of all the ways in which the world is is getting you down. It's putting you down. You, You want to have a men's rights movement. I feel one of my pathologies is that I have such a dim view of the rest of humanity, which is part of like thinking, oh, it's you versus the world. It's you and it's other people and hell is other people. And like that's that's another version of this. And I definitely have that. But like what you're just talking about, I I have to fight the notion in my head. My rational mind has to fight the notion that most of the world is still in that mindset where they I mean, you know, like I said, we were all in we we're all in the stars of our own movies. But it seems, you know, all, all I ever see, what is it called? The availability heuristic. Whenever yeah. I see someone who is recounting a story, how everyone they met on their way to work was a jerk or the, the cashier was a jerk. And then this person cut them off and then their boss was a jerk. And it's like, if whatever that saying is of like, if someone tells you a story about someone uh, being a jerk to them, it's fine. But if someone tells you a story about everyone they meet is a jerk, they're the jerk, right? So many people are stars of their own movies in which the entire rest of the world are idiots, are 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 dumb are i thought you uh, liked our podcast (laughs) yeah right (laughs) and we all do it to some degree and but when i notice people doing it i feel like i mean here's the thing when i tell a story like that i feel like oh well i'm justified but when i see someone else say that story like that i'm like oh well that person uh doesn't understand that the world is made of other people and that they're not the they're not the center of the universe and how out of touch they are and they must go through their entire life as an adult person that never got past whatever the stages in five to twelve years where you figure out that uh that you're not the only person on the planet and that other people are here too and you're gonna have to figure out how to get along with them right um and that's obviously not true but i i definitely see that a lot and i notice it when i see it and that makes me think that it's like widespread like the entire world's like that it's really can't possibly be the entire world like that but a lot and i map a lot of uh, a lot of bad things in the world onto it like that these people all think this this way or are doing this bad thing because they still haven't gotten past they never quite matured to the point where they are where they recognize the world beyond their own borders right then mm-hmm. and like you were saying it I, I i really feel like it is possible to be a productive adult a 
functioning member of society, holding down a job, have a family, have a wife, have a kids, and still still be like that internally. And I think those people make the people around them slightly more miserable and themselves must have some lingering doubts about their life, but maybe I'm just fooling myself. Well, no, I mean, like, and, but, I but it's, know. but like, okay, so, but then let's come clean. I mean, on the one hand, I can look at my grandfather, whom I loved, uh, comma, um, I mean, was a, was a tyrant and he was a racist and he was, he was in some ways like a, a, a pretty terrible person, even though, even as somebody I loved in my family, but I mean, you know, he was, he came from a family in South America where like he was from a colony, like he was from a colony where like essentially slaves, um, got pulled diamonds out of the ground. Like that, that's his background. And so like, I, I didn't fully grok that because there's a lot of code involved and stuff like that. But like, there was never any big family meetings about how grandpa's a problem (laughs) because that was the culture. That was the society growing up as I did in Ohio in the seventies, my entire childhood was so shot through with with every kind of racism at every kind of level. And no, I mean, like, the people in Indiana were maybe worse because they were burning crosses more often, but, like, there was so much racism at every level all around me, but it was all normal. It was normal because that's how life was. Having, a, a like, a tyrannical father figure in the family who thought that black people were naturally inferior was not weird, and it did not take a stretch of the imagination to be supportive about what Grandpa thought, because that's what everybody did. That's what makes culture culture, is that it's not weird. It's like, whether it's right or wrong, and so I guess what I want to accept, and I think you're implying this already, as my own mantle, is God knows how many flimsy things I use to hold together my entire worldview. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, I am, I, I would like to think that I am aware that there are a whole lot of existential toupees in my life that I hope never get torn off my head. But I just, I, I don't know. I, what do you think? When I think of something like the racist grandfather and the, the culture of racism, like, I think culture of racism is kind of one of those things that you, that any kind of sort of pervasive culture like that, whether it's like organized religion or racism or like, even something just completely benign. You grow up in it as a kid and you don't question it. Part of becoming an adult is to re-examine all the things you didn't question. Uh, you know, all the way down to like, do I, do my parents hold views that I actually don't uh, don't agree with? Am I going to be a different person than my parents? Uh, do I really believe in the, uh, the religion that I'm a member of or am I just doing it because my family is into it? Like, that's part of becoming an adult is questioning all those things. Maybe you decide yes. Maybe you decide no. Obviously, in racism, it, like you hope that people can figure that. Some people never do. Some people never question it. Some people do question it and come back, come back to it and say yes, I totally do believe in that because it's reinforced by all the people around me. Especially and the if you feel me. threatened by the world. Yeah, and this is the place where I feel comfortable, so I'm going to embrace everything there is about it. But when I think about your grandpa in terms of like uh, the late bloomer type stuff, is I think okay, he's got those views. Like I, I'm. I'm uh, reassured, frightened by my own ability to separate these things to say, you've got these racist views, but my question would be, uh, did he treat his wife like a, another human being or like a servant who was socially obligated to uh, serve his needs? And he appreciated her the same way you appreciate a really good butler, uh, but never actually treated her as a human being. Or did he have a loving, caring, equal relationship with his wife in which he, they treated each other entirely as equals and cared for and supported each other their entire life, all the while he was racist the entire time? Like, I think you can totally separate those things. The people are really good But by, at by, by, by those. which era's criteria? 
you know, any eras criteria. Like I, 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 I disagree because by by his eras criteria, they were having a well. Let's put it this way: by my grandfather's grandfather's criteria, by like a pre-Victorian idea of being a colonialist in the British Empire, it was flat out hippie stuff. <laughs> that he would allow his wife to work outside the home. I, be, I bet he even kissed his kids more than once a year. Well, you ever but, that but one? I mean, Did here's, you kiss your here's kids what... more than once a year. They'll be coddled. <laughs> um, but like, I, I don't want to say too much about my family, but you know, but I already have, I guess, but no, all I'm trying to say is like by his standards, like the thing is that whenever we go and we look at other, whether it's other people, other times, other eras, like we always want to like take this like incredibly sharp, Carl Zeiss lens of our time and like try to show how everybody got that wrong without understanding like what those people grew up with and what their life was. And I'm not trying to excuse that, but what I, all I'm trying to say here is that by my grandfather's and I, there is a punchline here, by my grandfather's standards, by his family's standards, it was an incredibly like new world American thing. Like he found, he found a, like an American woman that he married and he had a kid and he got a good job. You've heard me talk about this job ad nauseum, but, uh, but let's look at it by today's by today's standards. Uh, yeah, it's pretty cool that my grandma worked outside the house. What I did not find out until probably the late '80s is that she made tons more money than he did. The kind of the job that she had outside the house actually brought in the lion's share of income in the family. That he mostly covered stuff like the benefits and things like that. <laughs> it's one of those like turns out kind of things where it's like that was that was actually the arrangement. He got to be the the sire of the pack. But the truth was, she was the breadwinner, and she was okay with that. He was okay with that. It was something. I that wonder he, how okay she was with it. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, she was pretty. Like, okay. I she was pretty okay, okay he, with that. I wonder how okay he was with it. But but yeah, it's it's through the. It, they were right, they were surprisingly the, okay with that. It's through the lens of the time, and that you feel like that. That's how you can separate things. Like that's how you can separate the idea that. Uh, You've you've got a wife who you love and you feel like you're your equal partners and your friends, but like a lot of people like, you know, my wife is my best friend and we treat each other with kindness and respect and we are supporting each other in this life that we're building together. But I treat other every other woman like an inferior being. Like that the basically uh, there are people, you know, like that you this is the relationship you have here, and you think and you're totally racist against black people, and you think women should never be doctors. And these can all exist all alongside each other because the culture supports all of these things. Like what you do in the privacy of your own home with your wife is fine. That's a a personal, intimate relationship. Uh, That's how you work that out. Black paper and fear, everybody knows that. That, That's supported by the culture I'm in. Me treating women like their children or servants, also supported by the culture. And all those things can exist alongside each other if you don't ever try to reconcile them or sort things out. Or if you do revisit them and say, you know, no, this this is all seems right. This is all supported by... The, the society that I'm in. And we're all doing that right now and saying like, yeah, how we treat everyone in our life and how we f- feel about other people. Is it supported by the society that we exist in now? Then we're probably good with it. We don't have to worry about 700 years in the future when someone's going to look back on our past history and find out how we were failing in this section of I can't of, I can't even imagine how, life. like, you know what I think about is 100 years from now, how will they look back at, at uh, carnivores? <laughs> I have a feeling that carnivores are going to be remembered very poorly it's gonna take a while for that one i wouldn't i would bring that number up a lot higher but um, but can i can i add just a tiny bit like just last bit about this is like when i think about like again i'm growing up in, in cincinnati which is a, a, an extremely conservative 
And, you know, Ohio is a very mostly liberal union state, but Cincinnati is a total outlier. It really has much more to do with its neighbors, Indiana and Kentucky, in a lot of ways. It has, you know, a pretty mixed history with stuff. But here's what, here's all I'm trying to say is like, and first of all, I, I, I hope, I don't know, I don't, I don't mean to sound defensive, but I'm not saying we shouldn't look back and go, well, that was really screwed up. Uh, but I am trying to say, like, for example, I can look back and go, my grandfather explained to me that the criteria for becoming a Freemason, the way that he described, by the age that I was old enough to understand when he would describe to me, like, what, 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 who could become a Freemason, he flatly said, N-words are not allowed. And that was just, and he just said that. And it was even, even in the 70s, that was jarring to me. But he, he would say that. So I, I could grok that that was racist. But, like, here's the part <laughs> that it took a lot of time for me to really get was, like, well, you know, even as my mom, as a real estate agent, had to go to seminars about how to, how to there was, like, new laws coming up about redlining and steering, you know, those terms? Like redlining is the idea that like yep. you can say people in this area, like black people can't live here. Steering, mm-hmm. it was a informal but widespread practice of basically putting your hand on the back of some nice black couple with a middle class income and saying, I think you should look at houses over here. And so that there were laws that were passed while my mom was an agent that you had to go and take these classes like to, you are so not allowed to do this. <laughs> what I'm trying to say is, though, like it's one thing to look at those kinds of things and go, wow, history marches on. But you know what? I had a black friend when I was a kid. I had like a single black friend. So if in order for, for me to understand in that, I don't know how we got into this, but for me to look at something like racism, ra- you know, God, racism is one of those words like homophobia where it's, it's such a third rail and it's so big and there's so much more subtlety to how we look at people who are different than us than to just call it racism. But the fact is like I could have had a lot more exposure to people who were not white kids of the same income level. Let me say that. But I didn't. I, I, I was not, there was not any imperative to expose me to people who are not like me. Um, it would happen. Like, you know, one of my, one of my, uh, one of my best pals uh, in first grade is a big time Hollywood producer now who makes TV shows that you know, and he's from a, a like a Latin American background, totally by accident. It's like, but he was that kid. He was that kid with the funny name in our class. So that to me is that that's to me where I make a big leap in understanding this stuff is going like, what's the stuff that like, I never look back on how normal that was. You know, it's one thing to go like, wow, grandpa, that was kind of screwed up to say that. But like, where I really get it is when I look at like, what did we do every day, every week, every month, every year that showed a pattern of like unconscious uh, regionalism or provincialism in how we looked at the people around us. That's one of the things you talk about questioning things as you become an adult and reexamining. One of the things I think everyone has to end up reexamining, especially in, in these days, is do I want to live my life in the place where I grew up? Um, it used to be that people stayed much closer to home because they had to and because travel wasn't as easy and because you needed a support system right. that didn't exist anywhere else to help you. And, and it used, it used to have more family. ramifications because it really meant like in the case of like, do I really want to stay in Louisiana? Because if I go somewhere besides Louisiana, I kind of will become a different person. Yeah. And my people won't be there and I'll be on my, like it seemed, it was less viable. And, and, you know, as time has gone on, people have left their left their families more often and that's one of the questions you ask is if you're going to it gives you options to reconsider do i do all the things that are reinforced by the culture that i'm in if i disagree with them i should go someplace else because if i disagree with them here i won't fit in but if i disagree with them somewhere else i may i gotta find the people who think like i do i gotta find the people who are more open to the ideas that i'm gonna do i gotta find people who are questioning in the same way that i am so i have to leave where i am and go someplace different whichever direction you're moving in uh Mobile, getting out of that environment is one of the only ways you're ever really going to be 
free of these notions. That that's part of the rejection of the notions is that, like I, you know, I disagree with this. If you if you're like heavily into the church and your family's into the church and your entire community's around the church, if you just decide, you know what. Right. Uh, I'm not into this church anymore, but you stay in exactly the same place. Who are you going to hang out with? What is your social Especially like if you're in, like, say, Salt Lake City. It's, it becomes more, and I, I, you know, where, where it's like, well, it's more than just like I maybe won't go to church this week. Like you're still completely subsumed in that particular culture, in that location. Yeah, I mean, and you can't, it's hard to like swim against the tide in that way. You feel like you can't, can you make a new... Uh, social circle in a new society uh, according to the rules that you agree in or will you constantly be in conflict with the other people like that's why people sort of congregate in in places where they feel like their ideas are supported and that's the freedom to move is one of the things that you know to actually physically move when you couldn't I think that that caused a lot of people to either sort of live a secret life Mm -hmm. you know to to, in the day put on the mask that shows that they are following, you know, that they are doing all the things they're supposed to be doing, even though they have a secret inner life where they believe something entirely differently. Right. All the way down to, you know, like the, the gay person who is in yeah, a heterosexual marriage, <laughs> yeah, like the, exactly. the typical 50s one. It's like, you just what you got to do, and this is going to be your life. That's another sort of opting out type strategy where it's like, I know I'm never going to be able to act in these things, so I'm going to have to have a play acting life and make it look like I look like everyone else and find some other way to have an outlet for these feelings or just watch them slowly, you know, eat me alive. This episode of Reconcilable Differences is brought to you in part by Squarespace. We love Squarespace. And you can learn more about Squarespace right now by pointing your web browser at squarespace.com. Gang, I have been a huge fan and yes, a huge evangelist of Squarespace. For over five years now, it's not only the place that I use for hosting many of my sites and, yes, my own podcasts, it's also the first place that I recommend for anyone wanting to do the same. Squarespace sites are professionally designed masterpieces. These things are gorgeous. They look great right out of the box, regardless of your skill level. There is zero coding nerdery required. They offer intuitive and very easy-to-use tools that take all the pain out of getting your stuff online. Squarespace also has state-of-the-art technology powering your site, That ensures security and stability, even if you get a link from a popular internet personality like John Syracuse. Squarespace is trusted by millions of people and some of the most respected companies in the world. The wonderful part is that Squarespace plans start at a very affordable $8 per month. $8 per month! That price includes a free domain name if you sign up for a year, which you should totally do. Please check these folks out and do tell your friends about it. You can start your free trial site today with no credit card required by visiting squarespace.com. And when you decide to sign up for your paid Squarespace account, please do also make sure to use the offer code DIFFS, D-I-F-F-S, and that will get you 10% off your first purchase. Our thanks to Squarespace for supporting Reconcilable Differences and all the great shows. Squarespace, build it beautiful. Can I ask you the, uh, the hard question? Sure, maybe. Because <laughs> uh, I, I don't know the answer to this. Um, I think that the the question we have, I feel like we should ask ourselves, um, is in thinking about our kids, um, h- how do you... I'll put it this way. Um, I, I have always struggled with trying to keep my anxieties away from my kid. 
I struggled in the sense of like being aware that I don't want that to be a thing, but also just being aware that like as hard as I try not to pass on my anxieties and multiply them onto her, like just, you know, just not wanting to like make my freakiness have to be her freakiness. In thinking about the late bloomer thing with your kids, how much do you sweat how far along they are? And do you worry about that? And then how do you keep yourself from... (laughs) you know, empirically trying to intervene in terms of trying to make them either avoid the pain of not being caught up or avoiding the trap of becoming too caught up. Is is that a thing for you? Like, I'm guessing you think about yeah. this. Oh, I have, I have a couple of things going for me in this situation. One is that I am very aware that my kids have no idea what I was like when I was a kid. So I'm not worried about my actions now inducing in them the things that were wrong with me when I was a kid. Instead, what I'm doing is my actions now are inducing in them things related to to how I feel about parenting, right? So I am, you know, as my wife will tell you, an overprotective parent in that I'm always telling my kids to be careful. And, you know, I think I showed you a video the other day where my son could (laughs) barely speak and he wanted the video camera that I was holding and he said, uh, he basically, he, what he should have said is, I want the camera, give me the camera. Instead, he right, said, right. want to be careful with it. Want to be careful with it is his word for holding it. Right, because <laughs> every time I handed him anything that was like breakable and a real like grown-up thing, it was like, oh, here you go, be careful with this. His vocabulary for even discussing it You accidentally it was, taught him the wrong term. <laughs> was want, want to be careful with it. Be, that's what it means, be careful right, with right. it. It means to hold something, right? Like, want to be careful with it. Um, so... I'm inducing those sort of paranoias and anxiety. Like I'm transferring those to my kids, but those were not my problems when I was a kid. What I'm actually worried about though, what I'm always on the lookout for, which is stupid because it's the only thing, but it's the only thing I have experience with is like, Oh God, please don't let my kids have the same problems that I had at the same ages that I had them. Like I want my kids to be able to figure out how to have friends. I want my children to be able to figure out how to interact with boys and girls and have relationships. I don't want them to feel like they're up that I don't want them to have all this. Be- like they're not up to that stage yet. Either one of them. I worry about that in the back of the head, but I also realize that like my genes, they got them or, you know, whatever they got from me genetically, you know, that ship has sailed everything else. I don't think there's anything I'm going to do to them parenting wise. that's going to lead them towards or away from that. Like, my my worry about that is not going to transfer into inducing in them because I'm too busy inducing in them pathologies related to my parenting hangups, not related to my hangups of when I was a pubescent teenager. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, um, I do. And it kind of sometimes I will see that, like, you know, my kid doesn't have this problem that I have. They have a different problem. And it's a relief. Like, it's a relief that they have a different problem. Like, because then it's like, well, you know, and it's just stupid because it's like, well, I'm only, I only feel that way because I know how bad it was to have the problem that I had. Just because I don't know how bad it was to have that, it doesn't mean it's any better. In fact, it could be worse, but it's just because it's like, you don't get the sympathy. It's like, oh, I know what that's like. Thank God he's not going to have to go through that. Right. 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 And all the way down to like, this is going to be the most terrible thing I've ever said about my kids, but like the sort of, well, maybe I can reframe it to be less terrible. The anti-intellectualism that was like rampant in my childhood, where it was the worst thing in the world you could possibly be was smart. If you said anything in school that revealed that you had any knowledge or insight or anything about that, you were mercilessly mocked. You did not want to look smart, appear smart. You didn't want to know things. You didn't want to be good at things that had to do with school. It was the worst thing that could possibly happen to you. It was the lowest rung on the social ladder. It was terrible. Get you beat up. 
I do not see that in my kids' schools. And I say, thank God. It seems like no matter how good these people are at math, no matter how articulate they are, no matter how well they write, no matter you know how well they do in school, it seems like so far they are not going to be mocked or ridiculed for it. And the, the less charitable one is like, thank God none of my kids are math geniuses. Because <laughs> they don't have to worry about... I wasn't a math genius either, by the way. Like, I was terrible at math. But, like, just to give an example, it's like the worst thing you could possibly think about your kid. This is this is my hang-up, my terrible pathology. Yeah, because you're, like, st- you're still thinking about you. Right, exactly. It's like, thank God my, my kids aren't super geniuses uh, and living in the same era that I lived in because I know how hard it is to be really smart and have people make fun of you for it, which is so stupid. It's like, it's just just because it's a thing I'd experienced, the two sides of it. One, this is not the environment they're growing up in, so it's entirely unrelated. And two, why would you wish that upon your kids, that you're glad that they're not good at something? It's the worst thing ever. It's like me saying, I'm glad my kids aren't good at sports because I was good at sports and it was really bad for me and something. Well, right, you know what yeah, I mean? Like, like, I mean, you almost become like, one becomes like Carrie's mom, where, where, where you're like really glad that she kind of doesn't want to go out. Like you spooked her good yeah, enough. Yeah, you got to stay away from those boys. They're evil because she was spurned by them. And now they're going to laugh at you. They're going to laugh at you. Yeah. Yeah. That's, boy, you just really nailed it. It's that, uh, God, I'm such a child inside. But I, um, but, but I'm aware that this is going on. I'm acting, you know, like this is where the rational party ring comes in. It's like, you're an idiot. What are you even thinking about? But these thoughts do occur to you. And like when right. they occur to you, that's the time to think about like, why is this occurring to you? How stupid is it? What should you be thinking about or doing? Yeah, instead? but I mean, you're getting to something that I think is almost impossible, at least for me to avoid, which is like, you know, I'm, I'm prepared. Well, I, I'd like to think that I'm prepared for the lack of preparedness. I know that this this little weird journey is going to be going wherever it goes. You're going to become who you become. Things are going to happen. You know, there's so much stuff we don't have control over. But like, it's it, it it's there's a part in me that like used to feel like preservation that now feels like damage. Where I think like, uh, like the the, the biggest problem would be if you had the same problems I had. You know? Right, because you because you know what those are like, and they seem so much more. I, I, like I never want you to feel lonely or outcast. I never want you to feel like you know all this stuff. Like you know, but it's like, what are you gonna do? I mean, like you know, really, and this is this is the irony is that like, what if it turns out that your kids were better at handling that than you? What if being lonely and outcast at the right stage actually was something that they were really good at and like everybody feels that like but they were able to actually power through it because they were actually good at it and like at that point my advice now i am carrie's mom now i'm trying to trying to turn you into somebody who just sits around the house and reads the bible and that's i i didn't think that's what i wanted but like if if it feels like success becomes not letting you feel like a late bloomer at this thing i was a late bloomer at like am i helping like not really yeah the only one i can think that i'm doing uh uh, like there's the most challenging is like a lot of things in my childhood, I like like opting out of uh, dealing with girls. It was like hesitant to try new things. Um, and when I see that in my kids, it's part of the jo- your job as a parent to you have to push a little bit. Yeah, say, see, see also know, food. Really, yeah. We got to do the potty training. You have to eventually learn to go on the potty. I know you don't want to. I know it's difficult. But my job as a parent to make sure that it happens. Right. Uh, riding. <laughs> and a when bicycle. you explain it in that way, it's so persuasive. <laughs> Yeah, and riding a ride as I'm telling myself, riding a bicycle, which which neither one of my kids wanted to do, and I felt like it was my job as a parent. Not that riding your bike is like who cares, whatever, right? But but the idea that if you know that there was both of my kids, one more than the other, just did not want to try 
to ride a bike. I know they could both learn to ride a bike, but they just didn't want to try. We bought them a, in a series of bicycles, try to get them on it. They just like, they just didn't want to try Like, nope, nope, not doing it. Nope, whatever. Uh, and this is one of the things talking about stages where I'd see like all their friends can ride bikes. And then I feel like they're missing their window because it certainly is like all their friends have been riding bikes for years and they still don't even want to try. Right. And then right. it's like, I'm, my children are behind. I'm failing as a parent, not because I care anything about riding a bicycle, but just because it's sort of like, it's an example of like, there are going to be things in life that are uncomfortable for you to do. And like all these articles you read about how important it is for your kids to have grit. Like you will be challenged in life. Right, Part right. one of the skills you need to learn is like, you're going to do something that's going to make you feel uncomfortable, unsteady, unsafe. You could possibly fall off and skin your knee, but you have to power through it to realize there's something out the other side of it. And I definitely felt that anxiety of like, I am not, I'm not getting the job done. This is an important life lesson that my kids have to learn that they're not, you know, and how does this happen? Maybe because you're always telling them to be careful all the time. They became scared that the world is a terrifying place. Like yeah, you just yeah. blame yourself for like, you know, all the things that you've done being overprotective or whatever. But at the same token, I'm like, okay, well, let's, you know, let's counteract that by also trying to push them to learn to ride a bicycle. Right. And kids are different. And, you know, like my kids are separated by several years, but they end up sometimes doing the same things at the same times, depending on who's, who's ahead or who's behind and the thing like eventually they both did learn how to ride bicycles eventually the job got done i felt some satisfaction in getting that done but those are the things i worry about like is are my parenting hang-ups not my hang-ups that i had when i was a child are my parenting parenting hang-ups shaping my kids in some way and for milestone type stuff are my kids behind in a way that they're like totally missing their window and that this is not just a specific thing but like that is representative of a larger concept that is going to be important in life and i i'm just hanging my hat on it now of like of just stick to and grit and not not being afraid to try something you might not be good at being willing to you know fall off the horse and get back on and uh and just getting through that because i think those are important things to, to learn and sort of overprotective helicoptery type parents are stopping that from happening in their kids because but 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 it's it's you know the thing is what you're describing is like let's be honest it's not because it's not ultimately because they think the kid can't handle it it ultimately is because they can't handle it like i can't stand to watch you fall and skin your knee like a kid with a skin knee there have been millennia of kids with skin knees and they turned out fine it's just that in like that's the ultimate helicopteriness is like i'm not sure i could bear that uh, my my protectiveness is usually I'm totally willing to let them have minor injuries that I know are not life threatening. But then anytime there's a potential for, I mean, it's like it's the difference between like I would ever say, go ahead, sit, try to ride the bicycle until all your knees are bloody. I don't care because I know there's basically no damage you can do in that way. But if we're crossing a street, you can be killed within three seconds if you don't look for the cars. And so then all of a sudden it's like, is when is it okay for my kids to cross the street on their own? when they learn that they have to turn their actual physical head and look with their eyeballs and turning your head doesn't protect you from being hit by cars. You actually have to look with your eyeballs, process the information, Ugh. make a determination of whether there's a car we there. We could do a because, whole you know, episode, a whole episode on crossing the street. We could do a, a, a semester of college about crossing the street. Right. It's and everything it's like, you need to know about risk and safety and Buddhism in life is crossing the street. And, and like our parents of our generation, like we're willing to play the game where it's like, well, we're just going to send all our kids out into the street. A very, very vanishingly small percentage of them are going to die. And <laughs> just everyone play, else just playing the numbers. <laughs> and everyone else is going to learn how to cross the street safely. Everyone's, you know, they're going to get honked at. They're going to almost get hit. Someone's going to slam on the brakes. It's going to happen two or three times. They're going to be fine. Eventually, they'll learn how to cross the street. And then here I am, you know, in my generation saying, 
I'm not willing to roll that dice. I feel like it can be done through education and experience. I will not let them cross the street by themselves. I will cross the street with them and make them the leader and try to teach them. Turn your head, look, is it safe? What do you see? Left, so on and left, so right, forth. Left, right, left. Again and again and again, we will drill it, we will do it, we will ever, and then I will say, okay, now you can cross the street on your own, and I'll watch them run across the street and never turn their head, and just never look in either direction, and I will say, well, you failed that test, I guess we need to work on it more, and like, it's just not the way you teach kids to cross the street. This is the example of overprotective parenting, it's like, you're not even willing to take that tiny risk, because you know it's not a risk, oh, they're not just going to skin their knee or whatever. There, there is very, you know, there's actual real chance that they yeah, could there, get hit by a car yeah. and die. Like, it is a real thing that happens, even though it is so incredibly rare. It's like, yeah, but are you willing to take the risk? Is that the, really the only way to teach your kids? Maybe it is the only way, and I'm doing a terrible job. But, like, eventually, you feel like, you know, my kids are walking home from school now, right? You know, crossing the street by themselves. They're doing it much later than they should have. Did I help or hurt them by being overprotective? Maybe I hurt them, but I, I don't know. It's like the whole, you know, I, that's why I feel like it's not like I'm going to be, oh, I can't bear to see them fall off the bike. I could see them fall off the bike all day, much more than they want to. It's like when when I know there's actual life and death on the line, then, and they're not aware of that. Well, that but that's the irony of what you're describing is is that, and I'm, I'm really realizing this now, is that I understand like where I live, I mean, there are stakes to crossing the street. There are giant, 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 those streetcars you hear going by my office, like that could hit my kid if they're not paying attention. Uh, a lot of people in our neighborhood, they're just running stop signs. Like my head is racing with knowing what I confront every time I cross the street. But here's the irony of that is that like you think about, think about the, the, the lower stakes more abstract things that you eventually get some kids to understand sometimes. Like in my case, I have a big point of pride, probably unearned, that my kid knows that when she comes home, the first thing she does, she takes off her shoes, she comes upstairs, and she washes her hands. And every time I hear that faucet go on, I'm I'm incredibly proud because I'm like, I'm not sure how we pulled that off. I don't know that many people whose kids wash their hands when when they come home. But for some reason, that one stuck. Now, the thing is, that was actually weirdly low stakes. I never had to explain to her wait a minute now seriously let's go to another room and sit and look into each other's faces a foot away from each other and let's talk about pathogens we never had to do that we never had to go like do you understand that there could be poop on something and then that goes in your mouth like you're just weakening her immune system you realize you're dead to me but but but, but in that <laughs> yeah. case it is low stakes it's like probably like it's not the same as crossing in front of the train no but here's but here's like here's the dumb part of that yeah it was it's relatively low stakes but you know what you know what made that work repetition repetition you know what didn't make it work was high stakes so the funny part is if you want to get your kid good at crossing the street you know what you do cross the street more and the thing is crossing the street more with lower stakes and more repetition will make them good at it and you can certainly have some coaching like today i had to explain to my kid i'm always trying to explain to her like Listen, like the way that you carry yourself has an effect on your safety, not just in terms of like muggings and stuff, but more like when you're crossing the street, like hold yourself erect, make eye contact with people, turn your head and look and like give a wave and stuff like that. Like be in the moment when you're crossing the street. Like that is the hugest thing in terms of survival is like, but you don't want to even appear like in her case, like she rides her scooter down the hill and she gets within five feet of the street, it looks like she's going to ride into the street. And I'm like, you have to understand that what you're doing there, people think that you're about to ride into the street. I know that doesn't make sense to you, but to them, you almost just died. And the thing is, though, like, the more I turn that into a high-stakes venture, 
I'm, I'm not sure that's helping. I'm not. Well, re- I'm really even not sure it's having helping. these conversations. I question whether, like, because I do them too. That you're having the exact same all, conversations. All the, like explaining like, and footnoting. My parents never had these in-depth conversations about crossing. They said like, look both ways when you're crossing the street, like once, and they told me like, stay on the sidewalk like three times, which I totally ignored and went off and rode my bike on my like. My my childhood was so different in terms like they did not have conversations about like what I'm conveying to my parents or to my kids and the same thing you're like we're trying to convey a lifetime of experience as an adult about what it's like carrying yourself across the street how to cross the street safely but we learned at least I did I learned all that not by some adult telling me in a lecture but by repeatedly crossing the street and almost getting hit by cars and actually getting hit by a car on my bike a couple times right and, and, that, and realizing, that, I learned realizing that, that even when you were being safe you still were not immune oh I was never safe I was the most un- I should have I should be dead a thousand times over the things I did when <laughs> I was a kid it was un- like I rode my bike to the hardware store when I was in kindergarten <laughs> to, to to buy ropes and pulleys with money my friend stole from his mom's purse. Like, this is my childhood, right? I'd watch that show. My, my, my kids didn't even know how to ride bikes in kindergarten. Like, let alone were allowed out of the house on their own, unsuper... And my parents didn't even know where I was. Like I, I, I monitor her when she plays in the yard. Right, exactly. Like, it's, it's such... It's, you know, and so, in some respects, I, like, there are good and bad aspects of the, the helicopteriness. Like, I think the good aspects of it are, like... If it's an unnecessary risk and you can get the job done in, a, in another way, then why bother taking risk? And the bad part is, is, is it an unnecessary risk or is this actually a necessary risk and you have to roll that dice because they're never going to learn it any other way? And it's so hard to figure out which is which there. Like, right. you know, it, it, involving everything. Like, it's the same type of thing. Oh, I never told my kids about sex. They figure it out on their own. I think we've all kind of agreed that that one is not the best one to let people just kind of figure <laughs> it out on their own. Maybe talk to them about I it. I never told my kid about transubstantiation. They- <laughs> Right. It's, it's, you know, so we're, we're, but, but things go and there are trends and the trend now is towards more involvement and attention. And I think there are lots of positive aspects towards uh, more involvement and attention and there are negative ones too. And I'm aware of them and I'm fighting against them. Uh, but I, I really think that like those are my adult problems getting pushed onto my kids, not yeah. my childhood problems. And, and I'm on the lookout for my childhood problems. And I feel like if my kids do have the same problems as me, in some respects, I am, I will understand what they're going through better, but I'm not sure that I would be any better at helping them through. Because if I think about when I was going through all that, is there anything any adult could have said to me that would have made things no, better? totally Probably not. not. Like I, adults were like, this was not, it's anything that involved them. This was my business. That's, it was a total blah, blah, ginger thing. And the more histrionic people got, the less credibility they had. No one ever discussed it with me at all. I never discussed it with them. I didn't want to talk about it with them. I didn't want them to know it was happening. I don't think that's particularly healthy, but that's how I felt. And so I think, boy, if they get into that place where I was, is there any way I can get through with them? And I'm hopefully, hopefully by one of the positive aspects of, you know, the being more attentive parents than our parents were to us is that we're trying to build some kind of better relationship maybe it's not going to work out for us i don't Mm -hmm. know but trying to build a relationship with them that is different than the relationship i had with my parents by the time Mm -hmm. i was 15 we'll see if i we'll see if i manage Mm -hmm. that it seems like it could be not in the cards and it's just like you know what teenagers are going to be teenagers and there's nothing you can do about it but i don't know also um i want to correct myself uh skull crusher mountain is actually my favorite jonathan colton song I go, uh, one of my early ones was I Crush Everything, and then Future Soon came up, uh, uh, for a while I was into I'm Your Moon, it just, it goes around in circles, I don't really think I have a particular favorite, but I have, I have some, like, some past favorites, like Old Girlfriends, like, Future Soon was my favorite Colton song for a while, I don't know what my, my current one is, not that I, not that I know so much about, uh, past girlfriends. Mm. <laughs> 
So it's just, a, just a long list. Let me get out my scroll. When the things that make you weak and strange get engineered away. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a good one. <sighs> I gotta pee so bad. Is that on the chart? Let me see. 65 through death. Peeing. Uh, pee, significant, peeing. Re- significant relationships. Mankind, comma, my kind, comma, plastic bottle that you pee in. Existential question. Is it okay to have been me? Is it okay that I just peed in a bottle? Hell in a cell. Examples. Reflection on life. (laughs) When you put it that way, it sounds silly. 65 to death says, significant relationships are mankind, my kind. Why is 18-year-old girl not listed in there? (laughs) The the Lolita phase of life. Yeah, no, I I think your biggest uh, thing you're confronting is the fact that you're going to just die. Yeah, that's not on the list there. No, they don't. Well, it does say, let's see. Psychological, psychosocial crisis is ego integrity versus despair. I suppose the despair is death. Oh, I'm never going to avoid despair. God, no. Yeah, I think you put despair in that column for my entire life. We didn't cover precociousness. Well, I I just, I I thought it was worth mentioning, like, it's not precisely the opposite of being a late bloomer, but the idea that, like, of, like, the kid who, like, the obvious ones, like, the kid who just got, you know, algebra fast or like the kid who got relationships with girls and wasn't a creep yeah i think when i think of precociousness i think of the person who was like the social director on a cruise who would like in second grade is like sue you should meet jim and we should hang out together let's play like they're just an adult introducing they're introducing other children to other children and they know all the social niceties and they're like they could basically get along at a cocktail party of adults and they would be fine. And they're in like first grade. I think and my daughter, my daughter's pretty good at that. She's, she's, when I overhear her talking to others, I'm, I'm always, cause her first impulse in most cases, like, are, are, are you following the rules? But like, like for example, today she was out there with one of the really little kids, like a kindergarten kid. And she said, so I was picking her up at the, at camp and like, you're not supposed to be out on the playground at, you know, at this particular time, unless somebody's actively picking you up. And she goes, um, what are, you, what, uh, what, what are you doing? Like, oh, no, I'm just playing. Oh, is that your dad? Yeah, that's my dad. My mom's coming to pick me up. Oh, okay. Uh, should you be out here? <laughs> Says Eleanor. <laughs> and the little girl's like, oh, my mommy's coming soon. She'll pick me up. She goes, oh, well, that's good. That's probably okay. Like she's, <laughs> but she's already looking for like, she's she's not exactly like, she's not bossy. I know we're not supposed to eat. She's, she sounds like you in that. I know you're the one who did her voice there, but she said, that's, those are all things I can imagine you saying. If you had that same discussion with that kid, you probably would have said the same things. Probably. Um, she's very into these Pokemon cartoons and the Pokemon books. We've never played the games or anything, but like the entire walk home, the entire like three quarters of a mile walk home, like she's just going on the entire time about the legendaries and the mythological ones and this uh, Vic Victini who who's a, a a legendary and like it's like I, I have no idea how you picked all this up. She might like Destiny eventually. Yeah, she probably will. Yeah. Yeah. God, I I keep meaning to. Uh, my daughter is a chatterbox, and very often we will go on car rides or walks where she will just talk the entire time, and I should just <laughs> record one of them. I, just, I almost, I, I seriously almost did it. I almost did that, but I thought, you know, it's wind, and I don't want to be creepy. But like, she's the little kids describing stuff is just endlessly fun. Or just like just talking, just constant talking. It's like, what can they possibly be talking about? And just, I just want to record the whole thing and just play it back someday. Like, this is what you were like. But you forget, you forget. What oh, like I know. Do. I, I want to. I'm going to find this thing. I think I actually shouldn't have done this, but I think I put it on Kung Fu Grip. But 
I shall send you this funny um, audio file of One Night in the Bathtub when she just she went into this like fugue state and just started riffing on all these different names and like she just it was it was completely weird it was really trippy she just kept making up funny names for things and it's it's like some kids are like that all the time like there's some kids that are natural like performers mine's not a performer really i mean she gets silly but she she's not like like some kids really like seek out a proscenium I think I've probably seen that one if it was on the old KFG because I keep yeah it was, that, a, it was a, it's the one where she, where she like keeps going like you know my name is this but some people call me that but my name is this but some people call it. and then she then she lapses into the Wizard of Oz you know um, I'm always said I was bright as a button so Papa called me button bright <laughs> it's completely surreal um, well, like Robin Williams yeah yeah you're so much like Jim Carrey. <laughs> Oh, thank you. That's so sweet of you. Um, People don't say that to you anymore, do they? Yeah, often enough. So you don't like the va- you don't like the vaccines. Mm-hmm.